Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Attacks against Asian Americans have been on the rise during the spread of coronavirus just in the past month. An elderly Thai man in San Francisco was shoved at the pavement and died of his injuries. A Filipino man in New York was slashed in his face with a box cutter. Two Asian women in their late 60s and 70s were assaulted in separate attacks on the New York subway this week. Stop Asian American Pacific Islander Hate, a center launched in response to anti-Asian racism, has received over 2,800 firsthand reports of attacks and abuse against Asian Americans in 47 states and the District of Columbia during the 2020 pandemic. Jennifer Chen is a writer based in California who's been reporting on these attacks. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And no doubt that these, uh, these kinds of attacks have increased during the pandemic? Unfortunately, no. Um, overall, there's been 2,800 cases of self-reporting from Chinese Americans, and that is a vast, it's a huge jump from one year. In California, we account for 44% of those cases. Tell us about self-reporting. Mm-hmm. Some people are reluctant to report crimes like that. You know, initially, I think a lot of people were scared, but as time has gone on, they have said that more elderly Asians are reporting, self-reporting, which is a huge step, I think, for the Asian American community. Um, some of it's children helping their parents report, but they've also um, made sure that the reports are available in multiple languages. Have Asian American seniors been any kind of special target? Yes. You know, 7.3 consistently of those cases, those 2,800 cases you mentioned, 7.3 of those are Asian elderly. That means anyone over 60. You know, most likely they don't speak English. In New York City, like one in three Asian seniors live in a limited English language household. In addition, um, I think there's, you know, just culturally, we don't tend to speak up. We don't want to say anything. We just want to keep our heads down and stay silent. And I think also, you know, they're unfortunately defenseless. You know, they're usually just getting groceries. They're walking home. They're not apt to defend themselves in that moment. Why any kind of increase in this in this hatred during the pandemic? You know, my first story that I wrote for OpenMag.com in March was the first time that I had called out the Chinese virus and Kung flu as being racist terms to call a virus uh, COVID-19. A big response from the non-Asian American community was, this isn't a big deal. This is, this is just words. 
um, it's not real racism. Um, Kung flu is kind of funny if you think about it. I know for myself is that I could see my friends and I talking about how much worse it was getting in Chinatowns, in our communities. May I ask you about your grandmother? Yes. Um, last year, I wrote a piece about my ama. Um, she's my Taiwanese grandma and four foot eight, <laughs> I think was her final height. Uh, I grew up with her in my house and we her bedroom was next to mine. This is a sad thing to share, but I am grateful she's not here because I don't have to worry about her. Yeah. There have been citizens around the country who've been trying to help. Mm -hmm. And you've been reporting on that, too, I gather. Yes. I wanted to highlight a few organizations, actually. But one that came out of um, Oakland was a 26-year-old Jacob Azevedo. After he saw the video of the Thai man killed on the sidewalk in San Francisco, he went to social media and volunteered to escort elderly Asians on outings so they wouldn't be alone. After he put that announcement out, 400 volunteers came together to say, I will walk with you so that you are safe. Um, and that became Compassion Oakland. And in the New York City community in Chinatown, you know, business owners are, are doing a fundraiser called Enough is Enough. Um, and they are banding together to serve free meals to elderly who are afraid to go outside um, it gives me hope that, that we're not speaking into a void anymore. Reporter Jennifer Chen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. American civil rights activist, presidential confidant, and corporate pioneer Vernon Jordan has died. A family statement said he passed on Monday night in Washington. For decades, Vernon Jordan was a leading advocate for black Americans and a mentor to those who came after him. Good morning, Rankin Chapel. April 2017, Vernon Jordan speaks at Howard University, reflecting on a life that took him from civil rights lawyer to corporate America to presidential confidant. It is tempting to believe that our problems are particular and that our situation is unprecedented. I've come to say to you this morning, we have been here before. But our journey also teaches us that endurance is not enough. Listen, we do not sing we shall endure. We sing we shall overcome. Jordan's own journey began in a segregated public housing project in Atlanta. And from there to DePaul University in Indiana, the only black student in his class. Then to Howard Law School, where he was captivated by civil rights lawyers who practiced arguments in the school's mock trial room. And upon graduation, back to Atlanta. Came home out of some sense of mission, feeling that I'd come back so I could do something about the problem. In 1961, Jordan was part of the legal team that helped desegregate the University of Georgia. He escorted the school's first two black students, Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes, past a hostile crowd on their first day. Vernon was very serious and very determined. He was focused on his mission. 
Jordan also worked on voter registration drives across the South before assuming leadership of the United Negro College Fund. I accept. In 1971, he moved to the National Urban League, where he served as president for 10 years. Democracy, justice, and equality are not reserved for white folks only. His advocacy made him a target, and in 1980, he survived an assassination attempt in Fort Wayne, Indiana. The next year, he moved to a prominent Washington law firm, the move was questioned by some critics, but it proved groundbreaking. We are all looking this way for the revolution, and Vernon is over here in corporate America making the revolution. Jordan served on the boards of Fortune 500 companies and mentored younger African Americans, but he also stayed involved in national politics and was especially close to President Bill Clinton as an informal advisor. I never saw him turn down an opportunity to try to help a young person who needed help, including to give good advice. During the Clinton impeachment, Jordan denied allegations that he helped Monica Lewinsky find a job to buy her silence about her affair with the president. In later years, he remained active in corporate and political life and a confidant of President Clinton and President Barack Obama. Vernon Jordan was 85, and to further explore his legacy from civil rights to politics to business, Charlene Hunter-Galt is, as you just saw, NewsHour's special correspondent. And as you heard, Vernon Jordan did escort her 60 years ago when she desegregated the University of Georgia. And Ursula Burns is a senior advisor at Tenio. It is a consulting firm. She previously served as the CEO of Xerox. Welcome to you both. Charlene Hunter-Galt, uh, you have known Vernon Jordan for so many decades. You both made history together. Give us a glimpse of him when you first met him. <laughs> well, it's funny because I laugh because he treated me like a little kid. <laughs> you know, he wasn't that much older than me, but he was a very serious uh, you know, legal assistant to Donald Hollowell and Constance Motley, who were both uh, the lead lawyers in our case. And uh, I, I just remember that he was focused. He was the youngest lawyer involved in the case, but they used to send him down to Athens, Georgia, the location of the university, every day to try and find... Um, a, uh, someone who had applied to the University of Georgia at the same time I had, had the same credentials, and yet got in, and I didn't. And they went, he and a bunch of uh, assistants went through thousands of documents, and he finally was the one who found the critical document. He did make the transition. Of course, he went on to be very involved in voting rights and civil, the civil rights uh, movement, and then he made the, the transition to the private sector. He had a presence about him that it could make him basically fit in in any setting. How do you explain that? He was so comfortable about in who he was. He was so consistent, so confident, so just comfortable in his own skin, in his own space, that he literally floated into places and he presented Vernon Jordan. And it was always the same. You in a suit, 
um, in slacks and a little polo shirt. Literally, he was always the same. He was this guy, like a big oak tree who just put himself around you. And I met him in, in the corporate space, and I was thinking about it. He was not, to me, a corporate person. He was not a political person. He was not a legal person or a finance person. He was all of them. And I saw him operating all of those spheres without a break in form whatsoever. He was unbelievably consistent and just unbelievably strong. And, and he was seen, Charlene, um, in the black community as somebody who, enormously successful, had, had done what he had done, as we mentioned, for voting rights, uh, for civil rights, um, and, and stood, there, stood out um, as, a, as a symbol. Well, you know, I, I would encourage people to read his book, Vernon Can Read, because he goes into great detail about how he developed that armor. And it was his mom, his mother, who was just this wonderful person who helped to mold him and tell him that even though he lived in a segregated society that tried to make him and other people who look like him feel unequal, that he was not, that he was first class. And she guided him even when they worked for white people, even when they waited on white people. Uh, he, she insisted that he was somebody, and she taught him that you stand on the shoulders of giants. And it was those lessons that he passed along that Ursa just talked about to the, to the younger generation and those he worked with. You stand on the shoulders of giants, and you can become a giant if you believe in yourself. Pick up on what Charlene said, uh, Ursula, if you would, as a mentor uh, to so many um, how did he do that? What was his message? His, he was consistent and clear that to whom much is given, much is expected. And he guided my life. I literally, every important moment in my life, my daughter's birth, um, important moments in my career, my husband's illness, my husband's eventual death, my promotions, appointment to boards, every single thing in my life from the time that I met him was Vernon was there. Every important moment. And one of the things I was thinking about is how do you do that? How do you, how do you be so complete a friend? The way that you do it is that you are present. He was present. He was serious about friendship. He was serious about providing me and people like me shoulders to stand on. He was serious about having the expectation that I do the same thing. My life, outside of my mother and my husband, this is the most important person in my life. And he did it so gracefully and so seamlessly that, you know, I wonder, I keep wondering, how do you do this? How do you do this so well, so easily? And I try my best to kind of emulate him because he is the perfect example of a friend. He did it by faith. That's how he did everything that Ursula just described. And that's how I am keeping my sadness and my sorrow in check. Because, you know, I think that Vernon's, I have heard him preach enough from various pulpits on various occasions about the great camp meeting in the promised land. And I really do believe that 
he is a happy camper in the great camp meeting. And, and Ursula, just finally, if, if there was a legacy, what was the legacy? Total and complete giving of oneself to other people. Literally without hesitation, if he grabbed onto you and he did it to a lot of people, you were his. You were his. And he took care of you. He assured, he gave you assurance to keep pushing forward. And as Charlene said, he, he believed that there was better to come. He was probably the best friend I've ever had in my life. He's just so amazing. I'll miss him. He was a friend to so many, so many people. Wonderful human being. Ursula Burns, Charlene Hutter-Galt, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Vernon Jordan, larger than life. He was so fat. You saw how fat he was. I don't care what I brought in this house. He just eat it up. I don't care what it was I brought in here. I bring some Popeye's chicken. That boy eat the whole thing before I even get a chance to get a meal bite of the chicken. He just eat it all. He would eat his little ass off. You ain't never seen nobody eat like He would eat KFC. I ain't wanted to be fat like that. I do not want my baby to be fat like that because I know a black man in America, you can't be like that. I try to... Obesity is one of the most prevalent chronic diseases in the United States, so much so that many cities consider it an underlying condition and have opened COVID-19 vaccine appointments to those with a body mass index of 30 or higher, those technically obese. Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford is an obesity specialist at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital and joins us now from Boston to talk about obesity and COVID. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. What do you make of the decision to qualify people with a high BMI as an underlying condition? So actually, I think that overall it's a good measure. What we have seen with obesity as a disease is that it has been shown to be one of the greatest risk factors for both morbidity, meaning sickness associated with the, with the disease of COVID, and mortality. And the reason why we see this interplay, Lulu, is because we're talking about two inflammatory conditions. We have chronic inflammation associated with obesity, the disease, not playing well with the acute inflammatory process of COVID-19. Now, BMI by itself is an arbitrary cutoff, but it is a decent population-wide measure. Um, it's important, that, though, if you're talking with physicians and their work with individual patients to not use BMI as the sole cutoff for how we navigate treatment strategies for patients that have this disease of obesity. Mm. I mean, essentially what you're saying it is, is that the medical estimation is that it is quite dangerous that people with obesity not get the vaccine. Exactly. And, you know, Lulu, it's very interesting because we've also seen a dramatic rise in the number of patients that are seeking care for us at our weight center due to people recognizing the high predisposition of patients with obesity to poor outcomes regarding COVID-19. So our waiting list right now, Lulu, at Mass General exceeds a thousand patients. So on the one hand, you're seeing more people want to 
try and address their obesity because of COVID. Exactly. But we do live in a society that stigmatizes overweight or obese people. What are you seeing in regards to hesitancy for getting the vaccine among your patients? Yeah, actually, and, uh, Lulu, I'm going to change one of your words. So I never use the word obese because that actually promotes stigma. Obese, obese is a label and obesity is a disease. So we want to make sure that we use the right language to decrease weight bias and stigma in our, our population. Now, getting back to your question about this idea of stigma and bias, um, unfortunately, we have these preconceived notions because we haven't recognized obesity for the disease that it is, that people that have obesity did this to themselves. And that is indeed a fallacy. We do know that the most powerful organ that's regulating weight status is the brain. And the brain tells us not only how much to eat, Lulu, it tells us how much to store. And so there are many different factors that are playing a role in how one's brain decides to do that work. And when we recognize the myriad of factors, maybe this can begin to change the high prevalence of weight bias and stigma that we have here in the United States. I mean, there is a guilt that goes along with getting the vaccine uh, because you are overweight. Uh, it's about somehow being undeserving. I mean, I've had serious weight gain during this pandemic and it feels mm-hmm. shameful and critiques I've heard about including um, people with obesity in um, sort of the tears for the vaccine is that it is quote, like a reward for being fat essentially. Yeah. And that is absolutely absurd. I know I usually don't use words like that, but the, the idea that we would penalize any patient um, for having this disease of obesity is, is really indeed problematic. Should I feel shame as a healthcare provider that I am now fully vaccinated? Should persons that are advanced in age, right, over the age of 65 in certain states, should they feel shame in the fact that they're now advanced in age? Absolutely not. I think that we have to recognize that obviously we are going to want everyone to get vaccinated at some point, but why not allow those that have higher risk factors get access to the vaccine as soon as they can? But this idea that I think going back to the question that you stated or the statement you made really goes back to the idea that obesity is a person's fault. And I want to undo that myth that obesity is not a person's fault. Are there things that that person might do that may have contributed? Absolutely. But are there things that may have contributed to that person having a particular cancer or having high blood pressure or having other disease processes? Absolutely. We don't shame people in that same way for any other disease process like we do for obesity. And I think it has to stop. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford is an obesity specialist at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Thank you very much. Thank you. And everybody should master Neely Fuller's, you know, behavior code. Stop name calling, stop gossiping, stop squabbling, stop cursing, stop being discourteous, stop being disrespectful to one another, stop stealing from one another, stop robbing one another, stop fighting one another, and stop killing one another. And the ones that I add to it, stop using and selling drugs to one another. See, we're getting ready to be put in a real trap. New research looks at who is dying of drug overdoses during the pandemic. Studies done in Philadelphia and California show more black Americans are dying of overdoses than white Americans. 
NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann wondered why, and he talked to experts who told him about a problem of racial bias embedded in the way people with addiction are treated. When Latoya Jenkins talks about her mom, she likes to focus on good memories, playing games together with simple things like dish soap. Rainy days, she would take us outside and we would make bubbles. Jenkins' family lives in upstate New York. She says her mom, Sonia Huey, had a hard life and started using drugs as a teenager. The loneliness and isolation of the pandemic made things worse. Her mom was using meth, and in November she was arrested. Jenkins says that might have been a chance to get help. She asked, you know, can I get the rehab? I have a drug problem. They said no. Rehab wasn't an option for her. Jenkins says a month later, Sonia Huey, who was 48 years old, overdosed on meth contaminated with fentanyl. We got a phone call from my mom's boyfriend that he found her dead. Scientists at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention say fatal drug overdoses nationwide spiked 20% during the pandemic. More than 83,000 Americans died. The CDC doesn't track drug deaths by race, but Dr. Ucha Katri at the University of Pennsylvania says it's clear the surge is hitting some communities harder than others. It wasn't until we started looking at the level of race and ethnicity that we realized that black and brown communities were being disproportionately affected. Katri's peer-reviewed study, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, focused on data gathered in Philadelphia. What she found shocked her. Overdose deaths among black residents surged more than 50 percent during the pandemic. Among white residents, overdose rates didn't rise at all. In some months, they actually went down. COVID acted as salt in the wounds of health and social inequities that are perpetuated by structural racism, both in Philadelphia and across the country. Other scientists report similar findings, drug deaths rising faster among blacks than whites. Dr. Ayana Jordan at Yale University is part of a team studying overdose data collected in California. It is really concerning. The COVID-19 pandemic has sharply exacerbated the inequities of the overdose crisis, even within the last year, which is really, really scary. Those inequities can be traced to the war on drugs, which distorted the nation's response to addiction long before the pandemic hit. White Americans are far more likely to be treated for addiction with health care and life-saving medications, while people of color are more often punished for drug use. The prototype of a criminal, people were involved in a criminal behavior, arrests and incarcerations, that was the way it was dealt with. Dr. Stephen Taylor is with the American Society of Addiction Medicine, which issued a statement last week condemning racial bias in addiction care and calling for reform. Taylor says in many black communities, people with addiction are still more likely to encounter police than a health worker. That's what has been in place for a long time. I don't see that we've made progress in that. Access to care is so limited in some black communities, experts describe them as addiction treatment deserts. Dr. Nzinga Harrison runs a black-owned addiction recovery network based in Massachusetts. She says even when black Americans do find treatment, they often face more bias and stigma from care providers who are overwhelmingly white. You can hear it in the tone. You can see it when you're waiting in line. And a person who's not black comes in and they address that person before they address you. Harrison says that bias often skews medical decision making in ways that put black lives at risk. 
She points to another JAMA study published in 2019 that found black patients with opioid addiction were 35 times less likely than white patients to be prescribed buprenorphine. That's a medication that prevents relapse and overdose. These experiences add up time and time and time and time to say this system does not have my best interest at heart. Another JAMA study published last month found overdose deaths in urban communities could be cut nearly in half in just two years. But researchers acknowledge that would take sweeping changes, including much more access to medication and long-term treatment. Latoya Jenkins says people in her family who still struggle with addiction are wary of seeking help. They have that fear. If you go to get help, then people want to turn you in and have your children taken away. If they are seen somewhere using drugs instead of, hey, um, can I get you to a treatment center, get somebody to help you? No, we're going to throw you in jail. Jenkins says she wishes a real safety net had been there for her mom. If they would have listened to her pleas for treatment, I feel like strongly that she would be alive right now. Researchers say without major reforms, high rates of overdose death will keep ravaging black communities long after the pandemic is over. Brian Mann, NPR News. From my understanding about colon cancer, it really is one of the more avoidable cancers out there because it's so much linked to diet. So I can't really speak to what his obviously cause or anything was, uh, you know, so I don't know what his diet was like or anything like that. But um, it is one of the most avoidable cancers. And it's, and it's you know, when you think about um very little colon cancer in most African countries, um, especially where they're sticking to their indigenous diet and lifestyle. So it's definitely one of the top lifestyle-related cancers there is. A study by Epic Health Research Network found colonoscopies dropped by 86% from January through April last year. Dr. Allison Schneider is a woman's gastroenterologist at Cleveland Clinic, Florida. WMFE's Danielle Pryor spoke with Schneider about the drop in screening and how avoiding this painless screening for colon cancer could lead to more deaths in women. Colon cancer is the third most common cancer in women, and yet you said even before the pandemic, some of your patients uh, who are women weren't coming in for colonoscopies. Why do you think that might be? You know, this was maybe a little bit more of a private issue. You know, uh, maybe they were uh, afraid to, you know, talk to their health care providers about uh, you know, GI issues they might be having. Um, there were uh, maybe a little issues about privacy, undergoing these procedures. Sometimes they're nervous about what their results might be with, with these procedures. And I think a lot of it maybe had to do with, with the, the communication that they had had with their providers. Um, I'm, a fem- I'm a woman gastroenterologist, and I think that most of my patients are women, so maybe they feel more comfortable t- at times talking to women. And I think there are more women GIs I- in, in the country, and I think uh, hopefully that, that helps. And, and more women providers, even in primary care, that they feel more comfortable to talk to. And then the pandemic hit, making it even harder for people to seek care. There was a study in The Lancet that predicted a 16.6% increase in colon cancer deaths over the next five years. So what do you tell the women you treat about why not getting a screening can actually be deadly? Now, the wonderful thing about colon cancer screening is when we screen somebody at the appropriate age, if we find a polyp, polyps are you know, benign lesions, and when we're in there, we have the ability to remove them. 
the concern is that we'll find uh, cancers at a later stage where they're not going to be resectable to a, 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 you know, a one-step surgery or even resectable with advanced endoscopies. There's going to be a lot of morbidity. These are patients that are probably going to have to undergo, you know, more, maybe more, more palliative types of treatments if it's not resectable or undergo, you know, chemotherapy and additional uh, treatments um, moving forward. And experts predict women in underserved communities, including black, Native American, and Hispanic women, might bear the brunt of these colon cancer deaths. What might explain this? There was a recent publication uh, by the American Gastroenterology Society that has found that there are hot spots in our country, one of them being near where I live in Miami-Dade County. And basically, they're finding that one in 16 continuous U.S. counties are part of these hot spots. Many of them are located in the South of the United States, um, and among women especially. So we're talking about women with early onset colorectal cancer. They're finding there are certain community health behaviors, lack of physical activity, fertility, which seem to be related to early onset colorectal cancers in young patients that not only, you know, an issue of them getting screened, but also these are younger patients that are not getting screened. So the, the concern is that we may be finding more advanced cancers in these patient populations in the future. Has there been a Chadwick Bozeman effect, if any, on getting more young women and women from minority communities in to get these colon cancer screenings? That's, that's great that you asked that. Actually, yes, I did in my practice. I had uh, actually a, a marked increase a number of people coming in for their colonoscopies. And after they had, uh, you know, that you know tragic news, they, they felt like, okay, this is time I'm, I need to, you know, get my colon cancer screening. That was WMFE's Danielle Pryor in conversation with women's gastroenterologist Dr. Allison Schneider at Cleveland Clinic, Florida. To find out more about the symptoms of colon cancer and how to get tested, visit WMFE.org. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. A new report finds that when people are seeking care for Alzheimer's, their race makes a difference in the care they receive. Non-white Americans often face discrimination and a lack of cultural sensitivity. NPR's John Hamilton has more. The report is based on two nationwide surveys done late last year for the Alzheimer's Association. Maria Carrillo, the group's chief science officer, says responses to the survey differed dramatically depending on a person's race. Among non-white caregivers, half say they've faced discrimination when navigating through the health care system with a top concern being the providers don't even listen to what they're saying, perhaps because of their race, color, or ethnicity. Just 17% of white caregivers reported that sort of problem. Carrillo says black caregivers were most likely to report barriers, followed by Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Hispanics. What they're experiencing is actually affecting their care. That's especially troubling because black and Hispanic Americans appear to be more likely than whites to develop Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. One barrier reported by Hispanic respondents was encountering providers who didn't speak their language or didn't understand their culture. Carrillo, who is Mexican-American, says her own family saw this while caring for her husband's parents, who died with Alzheimer's. My in-laws both were only Spanish speakers. And so for us, that was a really important thing, right? Looking for providers, sometimes not even able to find them, and actually ultimately keeping them at home. Some institutions involved in Alzheimer's care are working to improve their relationships with minority communities. But Carrillo says they are running out of time. By 2050, nearly 40% of the older population 
will be non-white Americans. And so this needs to happen soon. The survey puts numbers behind what many people of color have experienced personally. Was I surprised? No. Alice McCora is a data analyst at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle. Her job includes research on Alzheimer's disease. McCora is also African-American, and she says people who look like her often have bad experiences with the healthcare system. I know someone who gave birth to their second child and almost refused to go to the hospital for it because it was so traumatizing to her as far as the way that she was treated and people responding to her pain adequately without thinking that she was exaggerating. And it was just such a negative experience that she didn't want to give birth in the hospital ever again. Makura was also unsurprised by the survey's finding that people of color are more skeptical about Alzheimer's research. For example, just half of black Americans said they trust that a cure for Alzheimer's would be shared equally. Makura says COVID-19 may have amplified those doubts by highlighting disparities in access to care. And she says groups who can't get care are understandably cautious when they're offered an experimental Alzheimer's drug or, say, a new vaccine for COVID-19. People maybe feeling a little hesitant to be the first round to get it makes sense to me because if we're not being treated as people worthy of real-time care but the first to now test out something doesn't make sense. As a brain scientist, Makora understands the need to enroll diverse populations in Alzheimer's research. And she says that would be more likely to happen if people of color had better experiences trying to get Alzheimer's care. You're in conversation with someone. You're not giving them a lecture. You're working with someone to see what they need and what they want and maybe recalibrating to meet those needs. Then, Mukora says, that person might be interested in testing a potential cure. John Hamilton, NPR News. Uh, That there was no such place. I had a vague idea that Rio de Janeiro was a place, so I kind of kept that in the back of my mind in reserve. And if all these other places fail, I could probably wind up, join the Navy or something, and go to Rio, and I could escape for a few minutes from being black. And uh, a lot of black people thought that way in the back of their minds. They were looking for a place. That's the gist of what I'm saying. But the racists, this thing called white supremacy over a period of years, about 1957 while I was in Japan, I began to realize that you got to turn around and just grab it. It's no place to run. The COVID outbreak in Brazil is among the worst in the world. About 260,000 people there have died of COVID. That's more than any country besides the U.S. And things there are getting worse, not better. Yesterday, Brazil hit its highest single-day death toll yet. Plus, a new, more contagious variant is spreading, one that appears to reinfect people who've already been sick. Duke University neuroscientist Dr. Miguel Nicolelis arrived in Sao Paulo, the country's biggest city, just over a year ago. He has been advising government officials throughout the pandemic. When I spoke with him today, he compared life in Brazil right now to living through the siege of Stalingrad during World War II. You just see your comrades dying, your friends, your parents, your relatives, your uh, childhood friends. I had childhood friends that went to medical school with me going to the becoming patient, almost dying. Dr. Nicolelis is from Brazil. He went to med school in Sao Paulo. And now he says one of the largest hospitals in the country there in Sao Paulo is no longer admitting anyone. Same for major hospitals in the countryside. They're refusing to take patients because they cannot uh, find a bed in the ICU to, let's say you have a heart attack or you have a stroke or you had a car accident. 
so people are on the waiting list of ICU beds for COVID. And actually I have, you know, it's, it's one of the most horrible things I have to say in my career, 40 year career as a physician, as a scientist, people are actually dying waiting for ICU bed. What are they doing? Are they staying home? Are they waiting outside in the parking lot? What, what's happening? Well, everything is happening. People are waiting in the, in the regular hospital bed. They're dying ambulances in other parts of Brazil. They're dying at home. Uh, in some places, like you heard Manaus, uh, they die on the streets. And you are seeing scenes which reminds me of what we saw in New York, you know, uh, where you cannot even handle the victims. You cannot handle the bodies of the victims. So I have uh, alerted because I had it uh, for 12 months. I was the coordinator of the scientific task force of the Northeast states of, of Brazil, nine states. And on 4th of January, our mathematical models were saying that Brazil was about to collapse in March, in the third week of March. And actually, we, we may collapse two weeks ahead of that. What you're describing is a, is a horrific situation. Um, and I have to say, it, it, it sounds different from what we are experiencing here in the U.S., whereas I noted, we have had more cases, more deaths than any other country. Um, but the vaccines are rolling out. There is a sense that, that maybe there is some hope ahead. What you're describing is a country where things, is there a sense of hope? Is there any sense that y'all are turning a corner? It's, it sounds like the opposite. Well, I have to tell you, I was on national TV yesterday, and I couldn't see a single you know, light on, on, on what they are telling me and what I was talking to them about. Is the most dreadful, uh, most uh, horrible moment, I have to say, I dare to say, in Brazilian history. Uh, different from other countries like the U.S. or in Europe, we have never had uh, events that provoke this number of casualties in a single year, 260,000 people. It never happened in Brazilian history. To give you an idea, we are making appeals. Scientists, physicians, and, and members of the civil society are appealing to the Supreme Court to do something because the federal government in Brazil has never taken this seriously, has never done what had to be done. And winter is coming to Brazil. We are suffering mass casualties, death during the summer. Imagine what is going to happen in three months when we get into the winter. And that's that, and we have had last year a bad winter. This is going to be much worse. On top of everything else, I mentioned this variant that was first identified in the city of Manaus in Brazil. What do we know about it? How worried are you about this? Well, I'm very worried because Brazil, uh, for starters, never closed the uh, international inflow from Europe and from Africa. So we got the British and the South African variant to start with. But then... In December, November, end of November, we start getting uh, data from uh, sequencing of this uh, Amazon variant, which in less than four weeks is spread through in the entire country. You have to realize this, is, this country is bigger than the continental U.S. in territory. And in less than a month, the whole country, we could find uh, uh, samples that were uh, from the Amazon. But the problem is worse than that. If you leave this much, uh, this many people infected, uh, Brazil is becoming the largest open uh, sky laboratory for new variants to come about. Because if you have this large number of people infected, you are going to have a huge number of mutations taking place. And eventually, some of these mutations can become more lethal or more infected. 
So, and this is happening in Manaus, and I have no doubt, and my colleagues here in Brazil, the top gen geneticists and virologists in Brazil are alerting uh, the whole country that we may get other variants uh, in a matter of weeks. You're bringing me to ask about what the federal government is doing. And at the top of the federal government, of course, the president, Jair Bolsonaro, um, who has uh, argued against face masks. He has sabotaged shutdowns. He has told Brazilians not to be sissies about the pandemic, despite the fact we should note that he himself has tested positive and he had the isolator last year. Is there any sign that he is changing his tune, that he is taking this more seriously as the pandemic appears to be getting worse no uh, there is no sign and no one is expecting him to change his mind and in my humble opinion he has become the uh, public enemy number one in the world related to the combat or the fight of the of the coronavirus he is basically making brazil a breeding ground that can compromise the world's effort in getting rid of this, this tragic moment in our history. And, and unfortunately, uh, uh, the president of Brazil has taken the wrong uh, side of this fight since the beginning, since the beginning, and is widely recognized in Brazil, and I hope is widely recognized around the world. May I ask what this has been like for you? Uh, I mentioned you're a doctor at Duke. You have lived in North Carolina for many years, but you have been back in Brazil, your birthplace for, for the entire pandemic. What has that been like? It has been a nightmare because I have not left this building for close to a year. Next year, is next month, I'm sorry, next week is going to be a year that has been closed in, in this apartment in Brazil. I have not gone, despite perhaps twice to go to the supermarket, but I see every day these projections getting worse. And I try to talk to anybody that would listen I talk to governors, I talk to anybody, ministers of the Supreme Court, anybody that listen. And yet, only now, I think, most of the society here in Brazil is realizing that this is, this is a battle that we may lose, a war that we may just lose. And we may lose half a million Brazilians before the year is over. We may get, actually, a, a, we may surpass the United States in number of deaths by the end of 2021. Dr. Miguel Nicolelis. He's a Duke University neuroscientist who is tracking the growing crisis. Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. Like many Americans, people behind bars are waiting to see if they'll be getting checks from the federal government as part of the new stimulus bill if it passes Congress. The majority of incarcerated people in Washington and Oregon were likely eligible for the first two rounds of relief money. Advocates for prisoners say the system for them needs to be improved. Correspondent Tom Bonsi explains. Michael J. Moore is serving time at the Monroe Correctional Complex, northeast of Seattle, for three robberies. He says he was unsure last year whether people like him would get economic stimulus payments. There's this bias against prisoners, you know. They might say something along the lines of, well, why are we giving this money to prisoners? They don't need it, not realizing that some of us do. A lot of prisoners are only incarcerated temporarily, and they still have children to support. They have house payments. They have bills. Moore says he was included in both the $1,200 first round and $600 second round of checks, but none of the money actually reached his pocket. So I lost all the money to a child support debt, uh, 
fortunately, my, my child support was paid off after that. <laughs> Past due child support is just one of many things states can deduct from an inmate's outside income. Other deductions include unpaid court fees and fines, crime victims' compensation, and costs of incarceration. Catherine Bentley is an attorney at the Public Defender Association in Seattle. She's trying to get more relief money into more prisoners' hands. On her desk, she has a stack of 50 letters from inmates describing heavy garnishment of their federal stimulus checks. On average, it's about 50 to 60 percent, and the most egregious um, was one gentleman was um, $900 was taken out of his check, which is 75 percent of the total stimulus money. Bentley contends total deductions over 35 percent are excessive in most cases, but the Washington State Department of Corrections disagrees. Agency spokeswoman Susan Biller says Congress shielded the second round of payments from most garnishments, but not the first. These are all based on statute, and so we are just processing that um, based on following the statutes. Washington and Oregon's corrections departments and others found themselves in the middle of a head-twisting back and forth that began last spring. It starts with Congress directing relief money to go out fast. A short time later, the IRS sent a memo to prisons saying essentially, oops, we didn't mean to cut inmate checks, send those back. Months later, a federal judge says, actually, no, deliver the money after all. Second round payments were often sent to prisons on U.S. Treasury debit cards, which are useless behind bars. Corrections departments mostly sent those back to the IRS. For its part, the IRS raised questions about whether prisoners should receive relief money, when that came before a federal court in Northern California, the IRS argued Congress didn't clearly include prisoners and that withholding their checks would help protect against possible fraud. But Bentley, with the Public Defender Group, says the court made clear that incarcerated people are entitled to the federal relief money, in her words, just like everyone else is. We had the argument, we had the debate, and the judge ruled. So now it's time for the prisons to comply. Washington's Department of Corrections says just shy of 3,000 inmates out of a total population in custody of nearly 15,000 got first-round checks deposited into their prison accounts. Payouts to Oregon prisoners were hit or miss in the first rounds, according to two nonprofits monitoring from the outside. Advocacy groups are highly critical of what they consider to be roadblocks created by state prison policies. Filing a tax return is the best way for most Americans to make sure they're on the government's radar for a check. Easier said than done, though, from behind bars. Susan Biller says the Washington DOC has tried to be helpful by distributing model tax forms. Generally, it takes its cues from the federal government. I believe that um, we will <laughs> do as instructed. It is always helpful if they provide us with um, clear information that stays the same um, moving forward. Legal aid groups in Oregon and Washington state are now laying the groundwork for a mass mailing of tax forms and instructions once Congress finalizes pandemic relief round three. I'm Tom Bonsi in Olympia. It's not racism. Several Charlotte City Council members this week, Democrats and Republicans, said they're concerned about a city proposal to eliminate single-family-only residential zoning as part of its 2040 plan, even if they believe the idea also has merit. At-large council member Braxton Winston is the exception, calling single-family zoning a racist ideology. WFAE's Steve Harrison has this report. Laura Peavy of Eastover emailed city council members this week, 
asking them to preserve zoning that only allows for single-family homes. Some wrote back. Here's PV reading the reply from Councilmember Braxton Winston. Good afternoon. Thank you for sharing your concerns. Single-family zoning is a policy of segregation. I will not support racist ideologies and philosophies. Councilmember Braxton Winston. PV says she knew Winston believes the zoning had helped segregate American cities. But to actually receive it personally, I was just still taken aback. Even though I was kind of expecting it, it just seemed like a, a very personal attack on, you know, a resident that's just trying to voice a concern for a plan that we don't, that I don't feel is well thought out. It's, I, as I mentioned, shocking. Peavy, who's white, lives in one of the city's most expensive neighborhoods. But concern over the city's plan extends to African-American neighborhoods, where some fear scrapping single-family zoning will accelerate gentrification. The city says giving developers more flexibility to build duplexes and triplexes will create more housing units, and that will ultimately lower prices. But Councilmember Victoria Watlington, who's black, says she worries that new construction will be more expensive, pushing out lower- and middle-income residents. She represents West and Southwest Charlotte. We are not going to be able to ensure that people have home ownership opportunities at an affordable rate in these areas that currently, you well, up until a couple of years ago, you could find a house uh, below $100,000. She says Winston's comments about single-family zoning being a racist ideology is embarrassing, frankly, for our elected officials. It demonstrates a lack of understanding and knowledge and nuance and our understanding of what our constituents actually want. She continued... It's also extremely disrespectful to suggest that black neighborhoods and black advocates, black homeowners like myself that live in these neighborhoods in question are racist against our own desires. To stand up and say you're about uh, restorative justice and then reduce our opinions to nimbyism and racism is, is reckless. She agrees with Winston that zoning has at times increased segregation. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to do our homework to make sure that new policies don't have the same effects unintended. As for Winston, he makes no apologies. It's racist ideology and it's racist political philosophy. It's a perpetuation of of redlining and I won't support it. In an interview, Winston was asked about fears that allowing duplexes and triplexes in single family neighborhoods will accelerate gentrification. He says that more dense housing units are already being built today after politically connected developers lobby city council for a rezoning. really is only open to people that have the ability to spend tens of thousands of dollars on it. Um, it is a governmental barrier to providing the housing choice that what housing choices that people want. Scrapping single-family zoning moves the city closer to a free market economy, he says, something conservatives should applaud. I think it's completely unfair <laughs> to allow uh, one type of person to build and say, you know, another per- type of person can't build simply because we want to keep the character of our neighborhood the same. That's racism. But what about when an African-American leader like Watlington says her constituents are wary of doing away with single-family zoning? The tools of white supremacy and, and the tools of the oppressor are employed by the oppressed every day. And it is our, it's, it is our duty, I believe, to fight for equitable society to deconstruct those systems regardless of who is coveting them. The city says it's done extensive public engagement on the 2040 plan and that feedback has been positive. Some council members, however, say the concerns of residents and developers haven't been acknowledged. Council was supposed to vote on the 2040 plan next month. That's now looking unlikely. 
For WFAE News, I'm Steve Harrison. President Joe Biden's latest relief plan includes billions of dollars to help renters who have fallen behind on payments because of pandemic-related job losses. He's also extended the federal ban on evictions through March, which the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention enacted as a public health measure. But the federal pause on evictions is not an automatic ban. Since last spring, in the 27 cities tracked by Princeton University's eviction lab, nearly 250,000 tenants have been evicted. Retro Report, a nonprofit organization, wanted to know how that's happening and to whom. They went to Richmond, Virginia, a city with one of the nation's highest eviction rates, to look for answers. Brian Palmer reports. In his first days as president, Joe Biden issued a flurry of orders and announcements on a range of issues. Immigration, pandemic relief, education. Less noticed were his administration's moves to deal with another national problem, that of evictions. And this cannot be who we are as a country. We cannot let people be evicted because of nothing they did themselves. Announcing that the CDC's eviction moratorium would be extended by at least two months. That moratorium, which is not a blanket ban, has slowed eviction filings in cities like Richmond, but it hasn't stopped them. I had um, been diagnosed with coronavirus, so I, st- so I stayed quarantined in the house. When I first got the eviction notice, I was in a bed. Ezekiel Hicks pays $1,000 a month for an apartment in the south side section of a city where, even before the pandemic, roughly one in nine renters faced eviction, meaning a landlord won a court case against a tenant or actually kicked them out. I get up and I look at the door. I see a yellow piece of paper on my door. And I read it, and it was like, you know, uh, you have 30 days to be, we want you out of here at a certain date at a certain time. Mr. Hicks is like so many Virginians, Richmonders, Americans right now. He was current on his rent right up until the time that he lost work. But because of COVID-19, literally, in Mr. Hicks's case, because of COVID-19, he was unable to work. And as a consequence, now he's unable to pay his rent. Without income, Hicks missed some rent payments starting in May. Over the next several months, as his landlord tried to evict him, the amount he owed ballooned to $6,000, including not just back rent, but late charges, plus his landlord's legal fees. Hicks's situation isn't unique, according to Professor Benjamin Teresa, who studies housing and urban development. People who were already predominantly renters in terms of in the, working in the hospitality sector and hotels and services that are hard hit by both the pandemic and recession, that they've lost hours or lost their job completely. And so they're even more vulnerable to losing their homes to eviction. The moratorium gives tenants temporary relief, but when it ends, back rent comes due in full. That puts the burden right back where it was before the pandemic, on the segment of the population that has long been marginalized and disadvantaged. About 25% of people here live below the poverty line. Researchers at Virginia Commonwealth University found that the decisive factor in evictions in Richmond isn't lack of money. Even after controlling for income and property value, they found Richmond's most decisive factor in evictions is race. The most influential factor at the neighborhood level 
on eviction rates in a neighborhood is the racial composition of the neighborhood. So as a neighborhood has a higher share of black and African-American residents, it also has a higher eviction rate. And then conversely, if the neighborhood is whiter, it has a lower eviction rate. While there's no perfect comparison, two examples of Virginia show a stark contrast. Nearly 50% of Richmond's population is black. And the pre-pandemic eviction rate was just over 11%. Buchanan and Dickinson counties have nearly the same poverty rate as the city of Richmond, yet their eviction rates have been below 1%. Both counties' populations are also more than 95% white. Why does the burden of evictions weigh heaviest on Richmond's black and brown citizens? One explanation may lie in the past, when a racial caste system ruled the South, says housing advocate Tracy Hardney Scott. This is still the home of the Confederacy, so racism runs rampant in here, and the best way to control Negroes is to keep them in a place. And so the best place to keep them is totally in low-income, lack of, lack of, lack of, lack of resources, lack of education. Until the mid-20th century, blacks were largely excluded from political decision-making, confined to certain neighborhoods, redlined into zones where banks wouldn't offer mortgages, and generally made second-class citizens by American law and custom. If you want to know what's going on in African-American communities in the 21st century, you've got to walk through the fire of Jim Crow segregation. There are residual effects um, from the public policies of the mid-20th century that continue to still resonate profoundly in the 21st century. The century that gave us the novel coronavirus, which has hit black, brown, and indigenous people, all historically marginalized, with particular ferocity. This is precisely what happens when um, people who have been compressed in the neighborhoods, who live in multi-generational households, who work on the front lines of particular jobs, under, uh, underpaying jobs, um, that carry a high amount of the viral load. Diseases um, may not care about race or socioeconomic status, but socioeconomic status and race um, have a, a profound influence on the nature in which diseases affect certain people and not others. Hicks eventually recovered from the virus. Despite being legally covered by the moratorium, it took the help of a legal aid attorney to pay back rent with funds from a city rent relief program and to get his eviction case dismissed. Right now, my, my rent is paid up through a program that he introduced me to. And um, my rent is paid up, and I'm uh, trying to get this other job because the job that I had, I can't, I can't do that no more. Hicks says he saved some money to pay rent, but he's been hunting for steady work for months. He'll make ends meet any way he can. Plasma center, uh, different jobs, um, odds and end jobs. I can't go through this no more. You know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a grown, independent man. If I got to, I would go pick cans up and cut grass, break leaves, whatever, to pay my rent. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, 
George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism and white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. For the first time since the January insurrection, FBI Director Christopher Wray faced lawmakers today reflecting on the Capitol attack and the growing challenge of domestic terrorism. Lisa Desjardins takes us into the hearing room. I'd like to turn to a video to demonstrate the scale of the violence and the hate that we witnessed. He started with dramatic video of the January 6th attack itself and the words of officers who were there. After watching, FBI Director Chris Ray's own words were unequivocal. I was appalled, like you, at the violence and destruction that we saw that day. It's behavior that we, the FBI, view as domestic terrorism. Repeatedly, the hearing focused on January 5th FBI intelligence, warning of Internet chatter calling for war at the Capitol. Ray called that intelligence uncorroborated, but said his agents properly forwarded it within an hour. We did communicate that information in a timely fashion to uh, the Capitol Police and MPD in not one, not two, but three different ways. Having said that, I do not consider what happened on January 6th to be an acceptable result. And that's why we're looking so hard at figuring out how can the process be improved. Right. There was a lot of information uh, ahead of time. Gary Cordero with the Center for a New American Security previously worked in U.S. intelligence, and she does not see this as an intelligence failure. This was primarily a security failure, and then it's also possible that it was simply a lack of understanding on the part of the security personnel at the Capitol of the severity of the threat that was coming at them. The hearing comes as the FBI continues to make near daily arrests related to the riot. So far, more than 300 people with charges ranging from trespassing to conspiracy against the government. Monday, federal prosecutors filed a revealing document in the case against Proud Boy leader Ethan Nordeen, seen here with a megaphone on January 6th. This charges that he and other Proud Boys raised money and collected protective gear weeks ahead. On January 6th, prosecutors allege they used high-tech radios to communicate and purposely dressed incognito, no Proud Boy colors or clothing. This, prosecutors say, was to help with their plan to turn others in the crowd, who they called normies or normicons, to join them in violent attack. Ray said this is the rising threat, extremists with splintered motives. More and more the ideologies, if you will, that are motivating some of these violent extremists are less and less coherent, less and less linear, less and less uh, easy to kind of pin down. Yet they are able to launch what he calls inspired attacks, like on January 6th, turning large groups of people to violence. 
Uh, they don't have formal membership in an organization. They don't have clear command and control direction right. uh, in the way that, say, an al-Qaeda sleeper cell might, might have. Uh, and that, that's that much more challenging to pursue. Republicans sought to expand the conversation about domestic extremism to talk of anarchist groups on the left, which Ray indicated are being arrested more. We must call extremism, wherever it happens, across the board, left or right, every time. Democrats sharply pushed back at the notion of multiple sides. You have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters? We have not seen evidence of that at this stage, certainly. What Ray does see is a specific threat skyrocketing now. Uh, and the number of arrests, for example, of racially motivated violent extremists who are what you would categorize as white supremacists last year was almost triple the number it was in my first year as director. Ray said there is also a rise in militia extremism. Again, Cordero. He was absolutely sounding the alarm that the domestic violent extremist threat is substantial and it is on par, if not exceeds, what we used to think about in terms of a foreign terrorist or international terrorist threat. Hearings with other officials, including from the Pentagon, continue tomorrow. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Lisa Desjardins. Every nigger is a star. Every nigger is a star. Who will deny that you and I and every nigger is a star? story tonight, racial slurs hurled at the Omaha Northwest girls basketball team lead to Norfolk Public Schools being placed on probation. Well, this comes as the Nebraska Schools Activities Association closes its investigation into the February 11th game where someone in the stands is said to have used the N-word. The Norfolk coach, superintendent and others sent a card to Northwest team to apologize. But as KETV News Watch 7's Quinesia Fraser reports, the apology didn't stop disciplinary action. She said, Mom, they're calling us the N-word. Tawny Markison says her daughter, Northwest sophomore point guard Taylor, had just finished a basketball game against Norfolk High School. Nobody should have to hear what those girls heard. When she and other teammates heard the racial slur from the stands. And the cheerleaders followed him back. Um, she said the cheerleaders tried, you know, they wanted to give him a hug. They couldn't give him a hug because of COVID, but they were really, you know, those cheerleaders were really upset. In the wake of the February 11th game, Omaha Public Schools submitted a formal complaint to the Nebraska Schools Activities Association. Nobody wants to go through this, uh, and nobody should have to go through this. KETV Newswatch 7 spoke with the NSAA Wednesday, one day before they completed their investigation. It has happened before this year. Uh, but this is the first formal complaint that we've received. Ever? Like, this is the first formal? Well, I, I, all I can say in my three years, I, I'm a short timer here, but in my three years, yes, this is the first one we've received on this. NSAA Director Jay Beller says Norfolk Public Schools believes the slur was said, but was not able to find out who said it. They had a lot of documentation. They, they, they did a, a great job of, of talking to people that... Uh, 
that they thought were could could have been involved in this. Beller said when an allegation like this is made, a formal complaint from the district must be sent before they investigate. Well, we're going to have to take a long look at, at, at what we do and, and how can we make it better for everybody. As for Markison, she wants her daughter and the other Northwest basketball players to know that a racial slur. That's not who she is because clearly they're trying to use it in a derogatory term. We'll never define who they are. I want these girls to know that they're not less than, and right now we live in a society that is uh, works against them and not for them. Quinesia Fraser, KETV Newswatch 7. Beller says Norfolk Public Schools will be on notice until the end of the school year. If the district gets another formal complaint, they will face further disciplinary action. Beller says Norfolk Public Schools will also need to implement multicultural education plans for grades K through 12 and meet with the NSAA on August 1st. Norfolk Public Schools offered an apology Thursday with an ad in the newspaper. It's signed by students, staff and the administration and says no person should ever be subjected to racism and derogatory comments. We are deeply sorry you had this experience as a guest in our school, they say. The school goes on to say it doesn't want the inappropriate actions to represent the school or community. Quote, it is not who we strive to be. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. The fight captured on cell phone video apparently happened last Thursday as the John Marshall basketball team was leaving the court. OKCPS Superintendent Sean McDaniel sending this letter to the OSSAA's executive director, saying after interviews with their players, coaches, and Newcastle fans, they determined two of their players entered the Newcastle student section and threw punches after Newcastle students used racial slurs throughout the game directed at their players. McDaniel says even though Newcastle employees were in the student section, quote, not a single action was taken. Newcastle Superintendent Melody Howe sent an apology to the team for the racist language used, calling it intolerable, and says they are investigating and holding those involved accountable. The Oklahoma Secondary School Activities Association, known as OSSAA, says they are waiting on the completion of Newcastle's investigation before commenting. OKCPS okay, says two students were disciplined in accordance with their student code of conduct. Patrina Adger, KOCO 5 News. Why haven't you learned anything? You know, when you hang out with people with guns that shoot at cops, you're likely to get caught in the crossfire. New at 11, a Cobb County teacher under fire after those controversial comments on the Brianna Taylor case. She made the remarks during her virtual class at Pepper... Pebblebrook High School. Tonight, students are demanding action from the district. CBS 46's Sierra Cummings live at Pebblebrook High School. And Sierra, you spoke with the student who posted that video on social media. 
Exactly, I did. Pebble Brook High Schoolers wore black today to mark the end of Black History Month, but also because they were anticipating a vote from the Kentucky Senate that would restrict no-knock warrants. It was supposed to be a day about celebrating. Instead, some students say they were incredibly hurt. What's her name, Brianna? Something. Brianna Taylor. Students say they were honoring her during Friday morning announcements. That's when a teacher reacted in their virtual class. I, I'm sorry, she. I really, truly, I, I'm, it, it's sad that she put herself in that position. But she put herself in that position by hanging out with somebody she shouldn't have been with. CBS 46 is choosing not to name her because Cobb County School District has not. You're in a school full of predominantly black and Hispanic kids and you decide to say something so insensitive, why can't you keep your comments to yourself? Nobody needs to know how you feel. Students like Genesis Crumb want the teacher fired. Hundreds of social media comments are demanding the same. I was very upset and hurt, and I felt like she was oblivious to the situation. Crumb emailed the principal this recording, who replied, wow, thanks for sharing this. Now, when you hang out with people with guns that shoot at cops, you're likely to get caught in the crossfire. The employee incorrectly identifies Taylor's boyfriend at the time as the suspect. Students inform her that cops were actually looking for her ex. Still, the teacher doubles down. Yeah, like I said, I'm sorry she's dead, but and he did, they actually have proof that he fired at them first. For high schoolers like Genesis, the comments are just as shocking as they are heartbreaking. And I just felt like I have to fight for what's right. Again, students were anticipating the Kentucky Senate to pass a bill that will restrict no-knock warrants. That bill did pass this afternoon. Meanwhile, the school district did give us a statement. We're going to put that on your screen. They said tonight the district is aware of the allegations, is investigating, and will follow any relevant district policy. As a district, we expect every member of our staff to treat each other with respect and understanding. I'm Sierra Cummings, CBS 46 News. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, tr under Trump, on the brink of fascism. <laughs> New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. Right now, one metro Atlanta neighborhood is unsettled after receiving threatening racial letters. It's happening in Douglasville, where we find CBS 46's Trayson Bragg live with those disturbing details. Trayson? That's right, very disturbing. And in order to protect these families, I won't say the name of this subdivision, I will tell you, though, that one of the fathers I spoke to today tells me that investigators are hoping to find forensic evidence on the letter he received. I received one uh, two days ago 
and I was alarmed with what I read. People who live in this quiet and peaceful Douglasville neighborhood tell me lately they've become the targets of a local racist hoping to spread fear. The residents asked me to hide their identities out of an abundance of caution. They tell me since December, at least seven African-American families who live on this street have received individualized handwritten notes in their mailboxes from a man claiming to be a member of the KKK, spewing frightening and racist terroristic threats. One father who lives in this community tells me he turned his family's letter into the Douglasville Police Department because, as he says, in these politically charged times, you have to consider every threat credible. The letter is using the N-word, talking about the KKK, hanging people, killing kids, killing whole families, um, setting houses on fire. Now, we couldn't show you any of the letters because the folks I spoke to either threw them in the trash or gave them to police to aid in, inve in the investigation. Now, I did reach out to the Douglasville Police Department to get an update on this investigation, but they have not yet returned any of my calls or my emails. So you can count on CBS 46 to bring you the details as soon as we are able to get them from the police department. Reporting live in Douglasville, I'm Trayson Bragg, CBS 46 News. It was the violent arrest that began uh, the precursor, really, for the L.A. riots. On this day in 1991, Rodney King viciously beaten by L.A. police officers at the end of a high-speed pursuit. Those officers acquitted a year later, igniting one of the darkest chapters in this country's history. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy as the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? Those officers acquitted a year later, igniting one of the darkest chapters in this country's history. Here's Eyewitness News reporter Sid Garcia. It's been 30 years since Rodney King was brutally beaten by four LAPD officers. A beating that was caught on videotape. The officers were found not guilty. Soon after the verdicts, the L.A. riots exploded. Fast forward to last summer. The killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer led to protests across the country and around the world. Laura King, Rodney King's daughter, has been part of the day handing out meals to residents at Imperial Courts Public Housing in Watts. It's part of the work the Rodney King Foundation does. She says if her father were alive today, this is what he would say. 30 years is a long time to still be asking the same question because nothing has changed. Yet the date and the name, there's like other Rodney Kings, there's other George Floyds, and I'm sure tomorrow will be somebody else. And the question is, why are we still here? Why can't we get along? Los Angeles Congresswoman Karen Bass wrote an editorial for USA Today expressing her views on what's happened since the King beating. Bottom line is, is that no one ever believed what we said was happening with the Los Angeles Police Department. And I felt confident that once the world saw that video, that it would lead to transformative change in policing. 30 years later, she's leading the effort to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. There are provisions in the bill that support police departments in terms of calling for accreditation and training. And then there is a part of the bill that supports communities, providing grants to communities to re-envision policing. And the message from Rodney King's daughter is simply this. Let's do some good, 
but also work on getting along. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 6, 2021. So I have been told 30 years since the beating of Rodney King, not that race soldiers terrorizing a black person is anything uncommon or unusual lots of names to fill in there but this particular incident of white terrorism uh significant for lots of reasons um even the victim of white supremacy himself rodney king the la times they had a number of different reports uh, about this case uh this week (laughs) You will not believe who gets mentioned tangentially all the time with Rodney King or Renthal James, of course. Uh, But the L.A. Times had a lot of reports uh, and they had a really, um, I thought, constructive piece talking about Rodney King and just the man not. You could just put put that right there in terms of him not being understood as a, a human being, attempted father. None of that just a beast or some idiot. We can just do a, a, a quote him and do some catch for, can't we all just get along or whatever else? And no concept of man, what's it, you know, what's it like to live as Rodney King and to die at such a young age back in 2012 and all the, no concept of that at all. And then the LA times, they also had a piece um, with the court sketches from the criminal trial for the officers who beat uh, Rodney King. And I think they, they sold a set and then they also uh, have another set that got donated uh, to, I think it's an institutional library or what have you. Uh, but it was, uh, it was interesting to see all of these different uh, sketches, the criminal proceedings probably would be similar for the OJ Simpson trial. If they have those sketches, sketches uh, as well. I just, I also, it was not lost on me. We just finished all that time reading about OJ Simpson wasn't the Rodney King case mentioned about every other week in the books that sometimes it seemed like every week it was mentioned in some way or referenced Simi Valley, this Stacy Coon, this all the rest of it. Sometimes Johnny Cochran, even in his closing argument, he said, I'm so glad that we had video of OJ at the recital because we know, especially in this city, sometimes you have video and people still don't believe. Rodney King 30 years man Uh, let's see lengthy list of things to get to Uh, man so 2020 it feels exactly like 2020 but I am told this is 2021 Uh, this year has been uh, super unpleasant for a myriad of reasons Uh, I had my SoundCloud count like totally shut down through no shiftlessness uh, or error of my own. Uh, Gusty, I've had my account there for like three years, not as long as the cows, but you know, a period of time. And uh, I went to renew. Now, one thing I do not like, you can't just manually renew like it's an automated thing. You can't just go in and boop. So I went to renew. It didn't work. I've had this happen before where like 
card expires or how, whatever you have it hooked up can be whatever you know no shouldn't be a big deal you can just go in change the information you can't manually renew right so you have to wait and hope that they will do it sometime in the next week or so so i wait wait does it renew and then i'm thinking well hey maybe maybe i'm an idiot maybe i'm confused uh about what the the pricing of it is or maybe they changed the pricing which was true that ended up being the case but they didn't make that abundantly clear that would be gripe number two or not gripe i'll take that back that would be uh reporting issue number two that is a major problem where you do not make it explicit the pricing and just for scale so i think the three perhaps four years that i've had my soundcloud account like i can put an exact figure on it there's been a 33 percent increase in pricing that would have been fine no problem but they didn't let me know like oh, okay this is what the pricing is going to be this time around just to be clear so i hey i'm active I emailed them for customer support like, hey, my account didn't renew. Is the pricing different? Like, what's the problem? Did the card not work? Like, you know, help a brother out, as they say. The email I get back. I wish I had pulled the exact letter up in front of me. It said, we are overwhelmed at customer service and unable to help right now. I was stunned. Not that, I mean, I understand it's the year of the Rona and lots of people are overwhelmed for lots of reasons, but I mean, SoundCloud, like, are you all giving out vaccinations? Like, why are you overwhelmed? So overwhelmed that you, I'm trying to give you money. How are you so overwhelmed that you can't even, oh, look here, nigger. It's, you know, $2,000, hush, whatever it's going to mean. How is it that difficult that you can't even give me that information? Like I was stunned. Um, I am accustomed to, you know, all types of shabby treatment, but I mean, wow, that was, I generally have low expectations. I thought the bar was pretty low for just getting an explicit pricing for service that I've had for a year, but need to bring the bar down lower. All of that to say, so my account got disrupted. Uh, I was going immediately. Like my thought process was immediately. I haven't had this account there for 10 years. So, you know, I was having to go. Uh, and kind of backlog uh, to upload things anyway, except for current content, I was immediately just going to go and, you know, re repurchase and re upload everything. And I stopped. I was just like, wait a minute, that is like super shabby. Like under any other circumstances, my general thinking would be, you can't even tell me like there's been a difference in price. You can't give me any information. Just we're overwhelmed. And then you have these price increases that are not explicitly stated that's generally the type of thing where i'd say man i'm not happy with this service like we're good but i said i'll think about it if people think that that's you know a good resource to promote the program and for people to access there are lots of outlets uh for people to get the context of white supremacy black talk radio network itunes soundcloud or excuse me not soundcloud anymore blueberry uh google podcast i wasn't even on soundcloud to be that that's a whole nother story but i didn't even want to be on soundcloud i only got that to get uh something else that's attached to it that doesn't even exist anymore anyway uh podbean blueberry black talk radio network apple podcasts and other outlets that's just you know how much time do we have i try to uh post them you can follow on uh twitter facebook twitter at until justice facebook forward slash the problem is 
white people. Uh, I post uh, the episodes, the Apple podcast link and black talk radio network, other sites where people can access uh, the program should not be difficult uh, to access the archives. If you are interested, much obliged uh, difficulties. I would say it was my fault, but I did everything I responsibly could uh, repeatedly. I contacted them and all the rest of it. And I, I couldn't get basic pricing uh, information uh, in addition to other details, but be that as it may moving forward, if people really love SoundCloud, as I said, my initial intention was just to immediately go back and re-update and upload the content again. But that did leave kind of uh, the metaphor, a bad taste in my mouth for really lousy customer service. And I'll even get the exact email so I can read it. It was, it was stunning. Like I, you know, I could understand if it was maybe like the toilet paper factory or something saying we're overwhelmed and we, you know, have to get back to you in a second, but I mean, SoundCloud, Continuing, uh, I was talking before the program thinking about, I think Mr. Fuller correctly asks uh, if there is a system of white supremacy. I have concluded such a thing, unfortunately, does exist. If that's the case, we are in it as individuals who are classified as not white victims of that system of terrorism. What is your purpose for being on the planet. That I think is a very important question. One we should think about and not just think about that is a question that should be answered. And I mean, hopefully you'll live long enough that maybe the answer to that question can change. Like maybe we'll be successful enough. We'll be codified enough that we can replace white supremacy with justice so that that question being checked off. What are we supposed to be doing End racism? Oh, we did that established justice. Now we can move on to something else. Now, what should my life be about in a system of justice? Have to give that some thought for another 10 years and see if I can come up with an answer than that. But at least for the time being, that question should be thought about and definitively answered. What am I doing here? And I should even say, thinking about that question what should I be doing with my time and energy given that time is one of the few resources that is not guaranteed what should I be doing with the precious finite amount of time and energy that I have as a victim of white supremacy racism answer to the question uh, words, man. So we had multiple examples in the broadcast. That's one thing I suggest we should be trying to solve this problem. Words will be critical. Analyzing how racists use words, analyzing how the business of counter racism fundamentally is about changing our use of words, definitions. They talked about it in that report on obesity, which I thought was significant for a number of, uh, of reasons, I would say, regardless of the COVID-19 situation or anything else, health and doing as much as we can to eat well and take care of ourselves should be central to counter racism. Uh, that's been emphasized a lot. Trying to eat healthy fruits, vegetables, exercise, talked about 
all of that, the yoga retreats and what have you, was just doing yoga with Dr. Ruby. Yesterday, we talked about all of that drinking water, uh, where they were talking about we maybe should consider BMI in terms of your body mass index. Maybe that should be considered in terms of priority for vaccinations regardless of how you feel about that, because we've talked about over the years that, hey, there might be some racism, white supremacy with regards to body mass index, uh, where individuals classified as white tend to be a little bit smaller, uh, sometimes don't have the same muscle mass development, not always, but sometimes that is the case uh, where non-white people, particularly people who are classified as black, uh, often are larger. Uh, We've talked about that. Some of that is diet related and other issues, but uh, some people might say, hey, this sort of thing might be racist in saying that, well, we got to go out and vaccine, vaccinate a lot of black people. They have a higher BMI. If you think that's the case, either way, even if you don't think that's the case, it would certainly motivate me to let me make sure that I can be in the best possible health that I can, given the circumstances of white supremacy racism. You know, always going to be challenges to that in lots of ways, but. I'm going to do the best that I can get some exercise and to make these like lifelong components of how I exist on the planet. Getting exercise. We hear lots of folks here be in Toronto and retired firefighter going out exercising, sometimes even getting their offspring. You get, you know, a plus plus to go out and get exercise and make it a a tempted family uh, activity and drinking water. Uh, Caller in Florida has talked about that doing whatever you can to promote healthy eating uh, as much of a healthy lifestyle as you possibly can uh, to promote well-rounded health and saying that this is central to white supremacy racism because they want us to be sick and to have no vitality and no energy to go out and solve this problem, keeping that in mind. But then within that report on obesity, and they didn't even mention uh, racism or black people in that report, I don't believe, Uh, But they did mention words. They said words are important. We don't say someone is obese. We say that they have obesity. Obesity is a disease that takes away the culpability. They had all of that, which I don't disagree. I don't disagree uh, with any of that. I'll just say, ooh, that same level of care and precision with words that's the reason why we stopped when last week when they said, well, we don't we, we try not to say blackout that has connotations with service interruptions. And then they come around this week. They're talking about Rodney King, a dark chapter in the country's history. We should have that same sort of sensitivity. To, oh, yes, maybe fair and white lies and white collar. Yeah, all the rest of it. Let's see. Next. Uh, when they talked about the increase in overdoses, drug overdoses uh, amongst individuals classified as black, thought that was important as well. Uh, I thought really, I thought of red in Ohio. She's our resident expert on the opioid situation and such for so many years. Uh, But we had talked about this uh, before lots of white people overdosing opioids and, and lots of other narcotics that's been well documented for seemed like a decade or so uh, now, but at least the last six, seven years or so uh, we had been, or at least I had seen, we discussed before at least a couple times things that happen to white people. They do tend to impact non-white people, things that are not constructive. And sometimes they have an even more intense non-constructive impact 
on non-white people, black people, these type of narcotics and these type of things. Uh, and so we had talked about this before. I remember asking, do people think this is true? Are people seeing evidence that the uh, opioid problem uh, is impacting black people at some level? And we heard reports from people saying, yes, I am seeing evidence of that. Unfortunately, I think in the Virginia area and some other locations, people reported, yes, that they were seeing evidence that this was true, which is not surprising system of white supremacy, uh, but also just with all of the uh, chaos, confusion, stress. Uh, of the last year does not surprise me at all uh, to hear those numbers. And particularly, I would think of works like uh, Dorothy Roberts, Killing the Black Body. That's probably in my top 10 books. Uh, she was a guest on the program in 2009, but she and many others talked about how uh, black mothers, they go to the hospital uh, to give birth. And if it's some suspicion that, oh, she might have a substance abuse issue. It's not going to be, oh, can we get you some resources? And what can we do and make sure that you're a super mom and breastfeed? Nah, 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 nah. Handcuff this nigger witch. She is a crack mom and she's got a crack baby. And this is going to be the scourge of society. And oh my God, it's a, that's what they did when it was black female. So, I mean, I could certainly see. No, there would be a lot of other factors, just what they talked about in the report that would lead to this type of thing happening as opposed to white people. It's going to be resources. We don't want to mess up your criminal record. Oh, no, let's let's get you to some sort of, you know, facility treatment center and maybe get you a job and some housing. Wouldn't that be better for you? Yeah, let's do that. Continuing. Chadwick. Bozeman, man, Chadwick Bozeman. I was looking, I thought like, man, that just happened in August. Like I thought that had happened longer, uh, that there had been more time. And that's, you know, lots of losses uh, over the past year. But if anything, uh, that was another report where they talked about since the COVID situation where they saw an increase in females, non-white females in particular, uh, in colon cancer and people not getting uh, treatment or getting their checkups, uh, colon checkups, colonoscopies, I think they call it, uh, and not getting those procedures. And sometimes the facilities have been shut down and then people not opting to go out, just trying to hunker down and stay inside and all the rest of it. All of that. You heard Dr. Ruby Lathan. You can visit her website, rubylathan.com. I said I was just with her yesterday morning. We did yoga. I uh, worked out. We talked about eating correctly, drinking water, that was her voice. She was a guest on the program. She's been here many, many times now over the years, but she was talking about Chadwick Bozeman specifically. And she said colon cancer, that is one of the easiest cancers to prevent lifestyle cancer. That's the exact phrasing that she used lifestyle cancer, alcohol, sedentary lifestyle, not working out, not getting any exercise, not getting fiber, plant based diet getting lots of meat and fatty foods alcohol consumption that was exactly what we talked about in one of those things that's why i said just making that a core component of what you do on a regular basis if you have uh, children you share that with them that this is right here this works against racism white supremacy right here so that you can be in the best possible health that you can be so that you're not decrepit and they talked about that Folks, at a young age, Mr. Bozeman, I believe, was 43. People at a young age having these problems, instilling this, 
we I think uh, Mr. Reed, he was on the program yesterday and he said, you know, my daughter, she got uh, my grandchild uh, some McDonald's and I don't advocate that, you know, we try to do the best we can. And she's, you know, having a tough time as a mom. We can all relate. But, man, we want to try to eat well, instilling those habits from a young age, what we eat. It has lifelong impact on our health and, you know, how our vitality get back to our time and energy, how we're able to use the limited time and energy that we have. Uh, let's see next racial case system. Words are important. I heard that used. We read case Isabel Wilkerson second worst book I've ever read. However, I feel like Jeffrey Tubin should replace that. Like he lied the whole way through the book. Like I feel like deception should count uh, significantly, particularly a suspected racist writing a lot of lies. Like maybe he should be replacing Isabel Wilkerson. Anyway, uh, I thought of case either way, not a good book. One of the worst I've ever read. No doubt there uh, cased the racial cased system where they were talking about Virginia and the eviction problem where it was, of course, individuals classified as black were going to be the ones getting booted out, of course, uh, and because of racism. But uh, they called it a racial cased system in the Commonwealth. They got through that report and didn't even mention the coon man. Get through all of that. And it was Tracy Hardney Scott who I suspect could be a victim of racism. I'm not sure that was audio. I didn't, they don't have pictures, uh, but Tracy Hardney Scott, she said, racism runs rampant here. Control the Negroes, put them in a place with a lack of lack of lack of. Now I did think that's, you know, a pretty eloquent way of describing, uh, describing how you warehouse victims of white supremacy, put them someplace where it's going to be lack of lack of lack of lack of, and, <laughs> like that's it does not get any better the description i just went the beginning part that's why i say words are important racism runs rampant here what does that mean white people who practice racism white supremacy run rampant here be precise it gets expressed that way all the time where it doesn't get tied to individuals classified as white they are running rampant practicing racism warehousing black people in areas with lack of lack of lack of Uh, let's see oh man talked about what is your purpose for being here now you heard the litany of school reports at the end I was stunned hearing just one report much less it was uh, it was the report in Nebraska we had the report in Georgia two of those were at sporting events uh, we had the report in Oklahoma uh, we had the report with the Cobb County uh, educator just one of those was enough I said, wow what is your life about like if you are an attempted parent man one of your major life assignments is this is what is waiting for my offspring. I am sending my black daughter, my black son to this. No doubt about it. No confusion, no ambiguity. This, what you heard, this is what's waiting on your black child. You can prepare them as best you can. Say, oh, no, 
that's not an option. We're going to have to do homeschooling or whatever else. Or you can do nothing. Racists, they have a plan. And you just heard it. I was stunned because I said, man, it seems like, and I'm watching this video for some of these if you need to see it, but it seems like some of these are sporting events. I'm not a teenager. I've seen lots of brawls at high school, basketball, football, soccer, lacrosse, you name it. That's not new system of white supremacy. I thought we were still in the Rona. Like they're not even having like sporting events. I think the all-star game for the NBA is tomorrow. Are they having fans? I don't even think you get a chance to call Stephen Curry or LeBron James a nigger tomorrow. Cause I don't think they're allowing fans. How are fans, how are racists at the high school games yelling and calling black children niggers? How is that even happening? You don't, that was the initial and that it was happening repeatedly. Like I had to look again, like, man, did I get the same report? And I said, no, this is Nebraska. And this was in Georgia. I think that's two different locations. It's not even the same time zone. I guess I can get my mandatory plug in. I'm all like a thousand percent opposed to all of the athletics. I've said, this is another thing that you're signing your child up for. Good luck to that. Go out and be called a Negro and have Jerry Sandusky final your sons and daughters. I was going to include the report about the USA gymnastics teams can say that again. They don't care about children can get all those plugs in. But the main thing, this is at the school. It went from the athletics the teacher in Cobb County that they did the standard operating procedure doesn't matter. It can be a white uh, enforcement officer that's killed a black child, put their knee on their throat or whatever it is. And remember with uh, Ted Wafer, when he killed Renisha McBride, they waited like a week before they identified him. He had blown her brains all over the yard as well. We don't want to identify, you know, protect his uh, identity and things like Cobb County educator that we will leave anonymous, but she goes into class. Now they're going to talk about Brianna Taylor and her lesson plan. I just I have to take five minutes before we get started on our virtual call. Bravo for whoever decided to record that, but I need to take five minutes. I mean, if you're going to hang around with thugs and, and gangsters, I mean, what do you expect? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sad and all that she died, but uh, I mean, you know, you, you hang out with thugs and gangsters and crackheads and drug peddlers. That's, you know, that's what you get. And they said the students came back. Like, wait, 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 wait a minute. She she didn't do any of that. You know, they were looking for. That's irrelevant. That's it. What, what do they say? You you lay down with dogs, you get the fleas. That's what they say. She was hanging out with criminals and that's what happened. And I'm sorry she died. Now, let's get back to uh, what were we reading for the, the hate you give. Yes. The new. Negro American classic, the hate you give. And speaking of, now look what happened to Star. You hang around with drug peddlers and coons and no count thieves, and look what happened to her. That's why she had to go get a nice white boy. Yes, the hate you give. That's what you're sending your child to. Like, it is not funny at all. That is everything that you just heard right up to the hate you give, which I bet was probably in that school system. That's what you're sending your offspring to. I don't have children. And that's part of the reason, like, wow, when we talk about 200 questions and what are we going to sit down and talk about when you meet this cool fella, you meet this cute girl, what are we going to sit down and talk about? Like, there you go. 
what is our academic program to make sure that our child is never in the grasp and it was a white woman we just talked about that mothers of massive resistance white women and the politics of white supremacy it was just this week and we just talked about that that is integral to the system of white supremacy that right there is how you end up having a pipeline if that's how you think about Brianna Taylor I already know what you think about my child male or female got it pipeline right there Cobb County and beyond let's see anything I had a few more notes but we'll pause there the number is 720-716-7300 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the cows is constructive visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot Dot com. PayPal is in the top right corner. Uh, also on Cash App, Cash dot App forward slash dollar sign the cows. Uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have supported. Uh, Twelve years we have failed to solve the problem. Hopefully, in our dozen years, we have provided some constructive information on what the system of white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be classified as white, and what non-white people can and should be doing to help solve this problem immediately. Uh, Also, you can check out the wish list, Amazon.com, under Gus T. Renegade. Uh, Huge thanks all the investors who have nabbed items uh, over the past Uh, decade plus Uh, hope the broadcast has been worthy of your time and energy Uh, words are important I pointed out some of the tacky phrasing uh, or sometimes it was important Uh, obese obesity not obese just pointing out the different language and how words are very important in that process if we could not use metaphors that would be super appreciated uh, race soldiers are very skilled uh, at using metaphors analogies uh, sometimes they'll take two concepts that are totally separate and insist that they are identical uh, if we can make an effort to be precise exact uh, with what we want to say that would be appreciated I will prompt about the metaphors uh, if you are in a noisy environment if you could use your mute button, that would be really appreciated. Also, uh, if you you know have folks who are watching whatever the All Star festivities or whatever else is going on, if you kind of get to a quieter area, you can share and then mute your line just so we don't have to compete with a lot of unnecessary background chatter. Much obliged. And if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts, questions, observations, that would be grand as well. Uh, just make sure everyone has at least one opportunity to share. Uh, let's see. Star six one again for folks. If you have thoughts, uh, observations to share. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up line should be open. Uh, let's see. Hello. May I be heard? Uh, greetings, Irie in Louisiana. Salutations. Uh, hello, Gus. And hello, everybody on the line. Um, I had a lot of notes, so I'm going to breeze through them. 
um, let's see, Chadwick Boseman, um, I just found out that Netflix is um, showing a uh, movie with him in it. I, I'm supposing it's his last movie he made or one of the last films he's made. Um, and he's uh, in a movie about Ma Rainey. And um, I found it very, very uh, interesting. They have named the film Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. But he's in that film. So they're still making um, money off of him posthumously. I always get tongue twisted with that. Um, As far as the article on uh, colon health, and they were saying that the numbers of screenings have gone down and uh, trying to, uh, well, they did suggest that um, it was because, I guess, people are shy or ashamed or something. I wonder how much of this is because people don't have health insurance anymore because they can't afford it or they don't have jobs that used to offer health insurance. Um, My next thing is I wonder um, how many people are going to volunteer to walk non-white so-called black people to work, to buses, planes and trains, school, the grocery store, to their car and the parking lot if they make a mistake and park in the wrong spot, so forth and so on. I've never heard of such uh, an alliance and volunteerism for that. Um, I also wonder what the disciplinary actions exactly were for the team or the school. I know they said they have to teach sensitivity uh, classes or, you know, and that's subject to the discretion of the people that make the curriculum who are probably white, um, most likely than not, considering it's Nebraska uh, and Oklahoma. Um, As far as opioids and rehab, I have a personal story about how um, people can become addicted in the first place. I had um, multiple procedures when I was in the military And um, anyone on the line that was in the military will attest to this, that they like to give you uh, Motrin whenever you have a pain, a a cold, whatever. Um, So when I had these surgeries, they they gave me, they literally plied me with Percocet, Oxycontin, uh, Hydrocodone to the point that um, I I can say this without shame, I developed not a dependency but a habit where um, I wouldn't be able to go to sleep uh, without him. And so um, that also caused me some some health problems that I didn't realize, but I um, didn't develop a dependency to the point that I um, thought, excuse me, um, narcotics that are illegal or um, legal otherwise but addictive. But that's how easily it can happen. Um, so I'm surprised. I'm not surprised, but it, it's such a contradiction how they don't give pain medicine to people um, that are non-white black. But then on the other hand, if if it's just right for them, I suppose they'll totally give it to you. Um, no questions asked. Free refills. Come back in if you run out tomorrow. Um Today I had a very interesting conversation with my son. I um, kind of made him listen to Elaine Brown, uh, Power to the People. Uh, she was doing a uh, interview with some college students, and he was like, why do you have me listening to this? 
He's like, I know all this already. You've taught, told me about this. I said, I know, but you've never heard Elaine Brown before. And she has information I think is valuable for you. And so um, I said, you know, that, that, <laughs> I'm sorry. I said, you know, um, uh, there's a lot you don't know. I, I want, you know, I want you to understand the system. The system is so refined that we're at a point now that Bill Gates is uh, talking about blocking out the sun. He was like, I don't believe you. So I looked it up, and then he was like, oh, he was like, well, this is stupid. He said, what, what is that supposed to solve? I said, it's not going to solve anything. I said, but what I do know is uh, melanated people need the sun. And as far as I know, white people don't really need the sun. So it would suit them just fine because if that will help eliminate us, then, you know, that's part of the process. Plus, I found out he's bought 80% of the farmland in the United States. So I'm like, I say, I do not want you to be confused. Um, You may be confused, but at least less, you know. Um, So he listened to the the lecture a little more openly after that. Um, You played a clip about, oh, wait, there was another thing um, in that Elaine Brown uh, lecture. The students asked her if... um, white people that are against racism are gaslighting uh, or people posing that they're against racism if they're gaslighting non-white people into thinking that racism is um, is over or that they're serious about um, ending it. And she said, what does gaslighting mean? She said, what is that? So I said, oh, there we go. No metaphors. Um, you played the little soundbite of Barack Obama, and I remember hearing uh, this is hearsay, but I remember hearing someone speaking about President Obama saying that I thought President Obama was a black man raised white. He's a white man that was raised black, insert cowbell. Um, and then the last thing I want to offer you, Gus, if you are looking for an, another outlet for broadcast, you may want to consider Bandcamp. Um, I also um, am a musical artist, and Bandcamp allows you to basically do whatever you want uh, with uh, how you give, you know, distribute your music or whatever it is. You can set your price. You get 100% of the money if if you were selling even merchandise, for instance, to go along with supporting um, the the – not the channel, I'm sorry, your podcast, like your – your racism shirts that you had or whatever you come up with, you can even set that up on a band camp site and you get 100% of the revenue. The only time you pay uh, uh, per month, $10 a month, is if you want to point a customized URL to the band camp site. And uh, that's it. Thank you for letting me share. And uh, I'll continue to listen. I'll meet my line. Much obliged. Uh, Irie, I'm like vaguely, like very vaguely uh, familiar with Bandcamp, mostly just because some of the uh, folks, Cows listeners and other folks, they have utilized the uh, that resource Bandcamp successfully, I think. So I will explore still learning. Uh, that is a metaphor. A black man raised white as opposed to white man raised black metaphor. But that is what you do. Elaine Brown, that is the procedure. What does that mean? There you go. And then have the person who used the term explain it. But yeah, metaphors sometimes 
people don't exactly know what you mean when you use the metaphor. Lots of reasons to strive for being precise. Clarity. Uh, other folks who dial in, if you have uh, questions, uh, commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, Mo in Dallas. Hopefully, uh, pipes doing better, weather warmer. Uh, yes, yes. Um, thank you. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings, listeners and callers. Uh, weather is the weather is the weather here. It's up and down. Believe it or not, it's not as cold as it was, but it it has been getting colder. Uh, not cold enough to, to cause any issues with the plumbing, though. So that's a, that's a plus. Uh, thank you. Um, notes I took. Um, I, I kind of uh, disagree with Gus, the host, uh, uh, on the on, on your uh, position with obesity. Um, I guess it is uh, a condition that people suffer from. But I heard a quote in that segment that says, obesity is not a person's fault. Um, I don't know if I can completely agree with that. Um, um, and, 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 like, this this comes from me, like, knowing um, people who've been and who uh, currently are obese, um, you know, and they, they're subject to their own will to a certain capacity. Um, and, uh, I, I think it does take a lot to, to, to overcome, but I, I still feel, and these are just feelings, you know, that it is, uh, sort of a self-inflicted, uh, condition to some capacity. Um, and, um, I, I heard this comedian, he was actually an obese comedian, um, and he had this quote, uh, he said, uh, no one catches a thousand pounds. You know, you're not injected with a thousand pounds. You know, that was you working towards a thousand pounds. I mean, it was just interesting because um, you know he was um, he was like 300 pounds himself, but and he I think he died from being obese. Um, well, the teacher on uh, the Brianna Taylor incident. Uh, um, um, I was, it, it, I, I feel bad for victims when they're trying to, um, kind of inform a, a suspected white supremacist of the quote unquote facts as if they don't know. Um, like the teacher knows what she was saying. You know, I mean, and and it and it and it, it was clear that she knew what she was saying because even after they, even after the students did try to correct her, she was like, "Yeah, but still, you know, still knew a nigga." Like, you know, just just excuse me, but it was just so like flagrant. And then they were playing like, and they gave her like they they they, in my opinion, the way that the people were speaking, they were giving. The, the teacher is the benefit of being misinformed. It's a teacher. 
she's trying, you know, uh, uh, moving forward. Um, opioids killing non-white people at, at a higher rate. Um, I can I can see that, um, um, like uh, especially when um, when you understand the the level of stress that's taken out of opioid usage when you are a white person. Um, like you know they they have like I, I believe that was state I think uh, Gus I think they're neighboring state um, that pretty much legalized everything. Um, you know, they have treatment centers and they'll pass out clean needles and, you know, uh, give you, uh, pamphlets for counseling, you know, um, all these things that, um, if you're a white person that, that are choosing to partake in these things, you know, um, some, some, I believe some of their relatives might even buy them drugs, you know, um, they do have, you know, extra funds for it, but when you're a, uh, a victim of racism and addicted to these things, you know, like you're looked at as a pariah in, in certain capacities. Uh, you, people are, as on a whole are less likely to help you or assist you. No one's definitely not making sure your needles are clean. Your needles are clean, you know. Like we don't know anything about you other than don't leave your wallet there. So I mean, it, it's more stressful if you're a. a uh, and, and, and I guess that's just with heroin though, but if you're a, uh, if you're a victim and you're, you're, you know, choosing to partake in these things, because even like the hospitals, they won't prescribe you the proper, uh, as per the, the article you played, they won't prescribe you the proper, you know, medication to actually, um, detox properly. So like sometimes leaning back on the drug makes you feel better because like it hurts. Um, uh, the, the other schools, the basketball fight in, um, in Oklahoma, uh, they're just, um, it, it's a clear sign that it's dangerous to, to leave your children around white people, you know? Um, in that situation, just like the situation with the teacher, you know, investigations and 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 unknown disciplinary actions may occur. Um, there's a story I heard uh, from Plano, Texas. This is my last. Um, this is my last additive. Uh, there was a uh, uh, well, two things about Plano. A couple of weeks back during the blizzard here, there was an 18-year-old teen arrested for walking in the snow, um, and he was harassed by race soldiers. So that's also Plano, and they were in de- they're investigating that. Um, and now, uh, now that the snow is cleared, also in Plano, Texas, a teen was forced to drink urine at a slumber party. Only black teen there. And uh, he was called uh, the N-word, nigger. Um, shot with a BB gun, all of these things, and they're still investigating. Like they're they're investigating this. They need to investigate further. I, for one, am certain, uh, and I, I don't know how certain I can be, but I'm probably 112 percent certain. Um, if if I had a child in my home, and that child was damaged by my children or anyone in my home, I'm pretty sure I would be subject to criminal charges. 
at least for child negligence or child endangerment or something like that. So for them to be investigating and investigating, like this child was recorded drinking a cup of urine and it's on the news. It was just, that's amazing. If these people choose to do something to your children, that they understand that there is no recourse, uh, not anywhere, you know, not by you, not by themselves. The child is defenseless. So um, I would, um, with the with the teacher and the gymnasium incident and this slumber party incident, I would strongly advise or recommend that uh, attempted parents stay with your children. Uh, thank you. I meet my line. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Uh, I think I've shared before. I don't have children, but I've shared before. Very important to have a code if you have children in terms of are they going to have white friends? Uh, is that something you're going to allow? How do they associate if they have white friends? My recommendation, if they're going to have, I said it's not friends. They're white playmates, right? If they have uh, a white pal that maybe they, you know, go to the park for a sporting activity, that type of thing. But you are not in this white person's house. We talked about this in a lot of different contexts, lots of different variables. You don't know the parents, other children that are in the house, what type of food are they eating, firearms, Jerry Sandusky, lots of things that can go on. Not to mention a sleepover like, ooh. Lots of problems. Uh, in fact, I'll just read a little bit. According to the Dallas Morning News, Plano, and we talked about that report with the 18-year-old. That was Rodney Reese, black male. They had in the report, black man, 18-year-old Rodney Reese, harassed for walking home in the snow from his job. But they write, according to the Dallas Morning News, Plato's Independent School District and its police department are investigating the incident, which involves students at Haggard Middle School. So these are really young, like 13 year old, 12 year old uh, in a viral video originally posted to Facebook. Uh, Humphrey, that's the victim, can be seen being forced to drink a yellow substance at a sleepover at his white class as his white classmates giggle and tease him. Humphrey's mother, Summer Smith, believes the drink contained urine and says her son was shot with a BB gun and called racial slurs during the nightmarish slumber party. It's quoted as saying that they told him, cry, nigger, as they shot him. That's I just said firearms. I just said firearms. They shot him with the BB gun. You don't know what type of firearms uh, that they're going to have at the residence and all the rest. Like my recommendation would be to not have your offspring in the residence of a white person. And I would use reports like this and there are plenty of them. I would use data like this. There is a reason not saying that something bad can't happen at a non-white person's house. It totally can. But there's a whole different unique set of dangers uh, for a white residence that would just have to be very and explain why I think children most people respond better when you can give uh, logical reasons for why you know things are this way or why certain rules are the way that they are 
white people are dangerous. Uh, incidentally, the I did want to say also for uh, Irie, thank you for sharing, talking about some of the difficulties and what have you, going through some of her uh, medical problems. Much obliged uh, for sharing, making things real. That is uh, important. And staying with medical, that is so important. I can't believe that's like major negligence to not include health insurance with so many people having uh, disruptions to their job and everything that's uh, disrupted many white people, non-white people, their healthcare uh, plans over the last 12 months. So that has disrupted lots of uh, surgeries and, and appointments and what have you that people would have probably gone through with if they had not had disruptions to their work environment and, you know, health plan was stable and all the rest of it. So I'm sure that probably impacted the uh, colon treatments as well. Excellent uh, addition, Irie in Louisiana. Other folks uh, who dialed in, number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Other folks with commentary to share, proceed. May I be heard? Uh, caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, my first, uh, observation of the week, there was a story, uh, I, I don't know if you, uh, read about it or observed it, Gus, but it was a, um, a race soldier, uh, young generation at the UCLA college on the track team. Like there was a recording of him talking to, I don't know if it was his mother or like some, sound like an, uh, an older white female about, I guess, his girlfriend doing, a, um, uh, I guess, having sexual intercourse. You might as well just say that with a black male victim. Um, so he was expressing his anger. Oh, yes. Yeah. So he, he was expressing his anger, you know. And he said that he called him a nigger. Uh, and he said that, you know, he's probably he's probably going to be in community college for the rest of his life. And now apparently this guy, as they say, cheated on this white woman that he was dating. So, um, I hear the lady on the phone ask, Oh, well, where does this kid live? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know where he lives. You know, I, I can't believe she's, she's going to done this and that, you know? So he keeps using these, uh, you know, the racial slurs, the word nigga and stuff. So he ends up hanging up, but it wasn't, it wasn't clear, uh, wasn't made clear that this was his mom or whoever it was, but the guy ended up being uh, kicked off of the team. Um, so I don't know what ended up happening to him after that, but he was very confident, like, oh, no, I'm not going to get in trouble. Like, hey, you have to watch what you're saying after he said nigger. So he um, was very bold. He knew what he was saying, and you could just tell, like, the comfort was there. Um, and I wasn't surprised when I heard it. Uh, my next one was the – it was that segment where the uh, – I think it was at the basketball game, the, the girls' basketball team at that school, 
and they made it seem like, well, you know, we couldn't find out who this person was that, that yelled the racial slur. I'm like, how can y'all not? I don't know. I don't know how they couldn't find out who this person was, but I guess the, the uh, cheerleading team, I guess was trying to show empathy for them, sympathy and everything, but they couldn't find the racist. Um, that, in my opinion, is racism. So they try to say, well, we don't, this doesn't represent who we are. And they try to use these words to claim that they're so-called sensitive, which is another term I think they try to mock black people with and get us saying that we're sensitive. And it's just about, is this racist or not? This is incorrect. This isn't justice. Um, so I think they were also practicing racism by not identifying the racist. Uh, she could have been the one to help make the apology, but they weren't, they'd never identify her. Um, my, uh, my last one is on that segment when they were doing the hearings this week, I believe about the, uh, the, the riots I seen where I think that was a black guy. I don't know what his position was, but he said it took maybe, I don't know, three or something like that, a couple of hours before I was allowed he used the term allowed to make the decision to get, I guess, security up there or something. And I thought system of white supremacy. Um, and another one where the guy on there was saying, you know, we have to um, be sure we take this seriously about these, I guess, domestic terror groups left or right. So I'm like, what is, what do you, why would you put left first? And white second, when they say that they're right wing, you know what I mean? And right, and there's uh, an association, white is right, and then, you know, right is supposed to mean the correct thing, and right is a direction. So it's a lot of different meanings it could it could be with that. So I thought about that, and it was definitely racist how the guy who was asked the question about, well, it's no, it's no, um, proof that these were uh, bogus or fake Trump supporters. And he, I think he said racial violence or something. And he, he used the uh, word you, I think, is speaking in a second person where he was, he said you, he said, as you would call white supremacy, almost like he didn't want to say it. He didn't want to call it white supremacy. He's saying, oh, well, one of y'all would call it that, one, you, as you would call it, white supremacy. Um, I would be suspicious of that person. Uh, and other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, uh, caller in Florida. That is important. They will disavow. We've had some of our white guests on the program over the years who will do the same thing. Uh, you know, as 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 you say, white supremacy, as you call it, the system of white supremacy, whatever that means. Um, yeah, very, very common. Uh, well, what would be the better term to use? Since that's what we call, what do you call it? Extremism on the left and right. They talked about that in the uh, in the report. Uh, and saying because they got we got to make sure we don't forget about Antifa and such and uh, the black identity extremists and the militant end of the Black Lives Matter. We we got to make sure that it's all encompassing. Uh, they talked about that in the uh, report. All of this. Wait a minute. 
weren't the the perpetrators in this. It was not the Antifa. Antifa. It was not Black Lives Matter. It was rowdy white men and women who you all, which who you call right wingers. <laughs> Isn't that what we're talking about? <laughs> like, get out of here. Like, uh, that's why I said, if you watched it, anybody that's watched this, do you get a sense that they're going to seriously like prosecute? Like the numbers that I've seen, it was less than 300 people. They said it was 30,000 people who went to the march not all of them went to storm the Capitol, but I mean the baseline that we'd be starting with is 30,000 people and they said right now we got like less than 300 people charged did, did, did anybody watching the hearing calling forward anybody else do you all get a sense that they're like we're going to seriously like prosecute these folks maximum extent of the law we're not pussyfooting we're not messing around we are seriously prosecuting like with the metaphor that throw in the book at them. Is that the sense that you all get from watching the hearings? I think that they don't want to make it look like they are trying to um, arrest and prosecute a lot of white people. And I don't think they want that on the, what they call the media and the news and everything. And the masses, I guess, white and non-white people getting that visual, um, just in my opinion. But as many people have said, and the, they put that picture up where after uh, George Floyd was uh, murdered by the race soldier, they had the, uh, what, the National Guard and all kinds of other security already prepared if a bunch of Negroes came up there. And every time, well, most of the time... What you just what you see is just people holding up signs of his black people, but what they did, they were just allowed to just go and just do whatever. I just think that they didn't want them uh, National Guard um, doing any harm to a bunch of white people. I think that's just my personal opinion, opinion, and that's it. They don't mind calling National Guard out to uh, whack a few black people. That's in the book club. Uh, Geronimo Pratt, last man standing. He just talked about that Vietnam veteran. They sent the 82nd Airborne in. Uh, We got black ruffians in Detroit. We don't mind sending the National Guard in to smack them around, spear some people with their bayonet and the rest of it. But white people and even the uh, security officer. uh, That's why I said, you know, doing a whole lot of fussing at black people who are, quote, unquote, in charge follow the logic he didn't say he just got to go around and bark orders and get such and such over here and we need security on this floor right now and shut that like he didn't say that he said what was reported was it took several hours before i was allowed to get security into the Hmm. area allowed what do you mean you couldn't just make a decision like you you got a badge, you got a gun, you're trained, you can't just... No, apparently not. I could be wrong. I seriously doubt, you know, it was uh, Barack Obama that he had on the secret phone or Eric Holder, Al Sharpton. Like, I could be totally wrong, but generally black people are not the ones who are making those types of decisions. following logic uh number again is 720-716-7300 
the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Parents should probably, I hadn't said that. but Can I be heard? Can I be I heard both of you. I just will say, if we do have parents, you should probably not spectate because a lot of parent issues did come up on the program today. So parents should probably not spectate. Uh, Let's see. We'll get Mr. Blue. Good evening. Can I be heard, guys? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, Thank you. Greetings to all the guests. Greetings, guests. Um, first, I'd like to say my apologies for um, last week with Dr. McCray. I was trying to work out um, the audio, and so when I listened to the archives, it was a lot of background noise, so thank you for being patient. I appreciate that. Um, you know, this week is, this past year, this past week, it's been a lot of um, disconcerting things in the news and people sending me things and now to the compensatory call-in. Um, first of all, I'll start with like obesity in the community. I um, I know a good friend of mine I've known for over 20 years. Unfortunately, her child, she is a parent. Um, I'm not a parent yet, but her child is 14 years old and at 12 years old um, was diagnosed with, um, she was pre-diabetic. And she's not obese, but as far as it comes to the type of eating habits that they have in the house, um, it's hard to give suggestions about, you know, things that the child and also the mother should eat. And she's a very good friend of mine, but they're combating um, keeping her weight down and, um, and the things that she eats not only on her own, but also in the house. And it's a shame because this seems to be an ongoing, an ongoing fight within the non-white communities across the country um, with obesity and also now with child obesity and child diabetes. It's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm very distraught at um, hearing continued reports about obesity within the community, but hopefully at some point things will change. Um, and this week, uh, um, once again, white people classify them whites are not ignorant, not ignorant. When we were talking to Dr. McCray, I remember asking her who she thought was more confused about the system of racism, white supremacy. And it's, it's amazing how being a doctor, being this white doctor, you work, you're a professor in the university, you've written books, you have lectures, you get paid to do all these things. You get, in fact, get paid for your research. And when you're asked the, when they're asked the simplest questions, which then leads me to think that they're practicing, you know, practicing and purposely practicing racism. When you're asked the simplest of question by a non-white person, who do you think is more confused? And you know who's more confused. But yet again, you deflect um, deceit, um, just not answering the question, and all of a sudden, this unbelievable memory loss or this lack of uh, intellectual and logical judgment, who, you know, an, an analysis, if whether you know who's more confused about in the system of racism or white people. And also, she didn't answer, or yet again, the, uh, the common answer amongst 
people classify themselves as white. Do you think that not white people classify themselves as white and non-white people should engage in sexual activity? And once again, the answer, people love who they love. And it's, it's always this deflection. It's pretty much always the same answer. Um, I've been listening for two. And it's always that same answer. So people love who they love within a system of racism, white supremacy. So I thought that she was practicing racism um, multiple times throughout the interview. And, um, and that leads me to just my last comment or thought just this week listening to, I, I am definitely convinced that, especially now, during what this, is, this so-called COVID-19 epidemic, that non-white people are really, really confused. And why I say that is because many of my non-white friends have um, optioned to get one of the um, vaccinations, either the Moderna or the Pfizer um, or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, some are even waiting for the AstraZeneca vaccination. And I asked them several questions. I'm like, well, why do you think that all of a sudden that within a global pandemic, within a pandemic, somehow the virus has targeted black people or as they say in the media, that it's, you know, we're more susceptible in the black communities. Of course, we can consider health care. Of course, we consider diet, diabetes, all the things that are contribute to health in the black community or bad health in the black community. But Mike, did you ever think like how all of a sudden it, during this pandemic that this became racialized? And then several months back, six, eight months ago, we were, people were in the streets and they were protesting about George Floyd and that injustice of murder, but then you're willing to take a vaccination. And it really, it, it pains me because a lot of my friends are now um, some going into their second dose and just saw a report this week about the Johnson & Johnson, the infamous Johnson & Johnson and the baby and the baby powder and talcum powder scandal. Um, they're like, um, there is the Christian right, so-called, is, is petitioning their, their parishioners not to take the Johnson & Johnson vaccination because of aborted baby self, um, aborted fetus, baby fetus cells that Johnson & Johnson uses in its vaccination. And I've questioned some of my friends. I'm like, well, even if, if this is true, would you take it? Would you not take it? And many of my friends have said that they would take it because it's Johnson Johnson's is a one dose. So they believe that they don't have to take any more doses. And um, with all of the past, with all of this new information and the news in the last week, I'm just very distraught. And I've, it's unfortunate, but I'm always trying to get people to listen to the cows and I send them things and they still just don't want to listen. And I'm going to keep on trying, but yeah, within this past year, I think the confusion and the refinement of racism and white supremacy has confused more and more non-white, non-white people, particularly non-white black people. I'm my line. Thank you, Gus. Thank you to all the guests. Stay healthy. Much obliged, Mr. Blue. He was with us at the retreat way before the, it was only a year ago, but it seems like 50,000 years. Uh, but we were talking about that, like doing exercise, eating correctly, like trying to do as best we can, even under these conditions uh, to promote optimal 
uh, health, well-being, mentally, physically, emotionally, like all of the uh, above as best as we can under uh, really terrible uh, circumstances. Uh, we do have some cows listeners uh, who have written in. They've taken the vaccine and, you know, they are they were hesitant about it. It wasn't like they were, you know, gleeful uh, and skipping into this process. Uh, but having done their research and then I think they, they wrote in specifically and said uh, their motivating factor was they were around or they worked specifically. They worked around a lot of individuals who are classified as white who are not taking this serious. And then when they wrote for their update, when they got the second dose, they took the uh, Pfizer vaccine. One of the specific people that I'm thinking about, uh, they said that it has continued. The people in their workplace have not taken white people have not taken it seriously are not wearing masks and joking and all the rest. And then there've been reports of them getting contagious. And even some of them, reporting that they've tested positive and then they don't even want to stay out. Uh, and so the, they are being allowed to come back into the workplace, even though they have tested positive and all that. He said, but that, that right there was why he decided to go ahead and get the vaccine. Cause he felt it was going to be a risk either way. So I can take a risk with these white people who are not taking it seriously or take a risk with the vaccine. He chose to get the vaccine. Uh, let's see. Uh, and we had other cows listeners who wrote in about their vaccine. If we have other folks, if you did get the vaccine, let us know what that experience has been like. Still trying to learn. Uh, our caller, what is it? One one five nine. Thank you for your patience, sir. Did you have commentary? Yes, go. Uh, greetings, callers and listeners. Um, the I want to report on the. Uh, I'm, you may know about it. Never heard about it. The Dr. Seuss controversy going around. His um, six of his books were recently taken out of publication, and I, I read one of them with my offspring. It's called um, "If I Ran the Zoo," and this is such a great example of how the racism is um just hidden in plain sight. Um, because if I had read that piece um just a couple of months ago, I probably would have missed all of the racist caricatures and um. The wealthy moments involving the the gun and whatnot, and I also think it's a huge wealthy moment with the report on the um, black male um, drinking, um, being forced to drink urine and being terrorized at the slumber party. I think that's why uh, we don't let our offspring hang out with um, white children, especially do slumber parties with them, and. Maybe that's why I was never allowed to do slumber parties because that's just a really disturbing experience, and I hope the black male is able to um, recover from that. Thank you for all. Wow, what a project! Uh, Yes, sir, Thomas in New York. Do you do you have the Dr. Seuss book? Like, I mean, if it's uh, would be some labor to access it like i wanted to hear the hear the line if is it something that you got to see it visually to catch or is it something that if you if you heard it you would grasp oh this is the racism of it all um it's both i could definitely send it to you Uh, i have your email i'll send you what i have and i'll send you the the book as well but um you'll see it for sure and um it's just yeah. Hmm. Okay. 
Uh, did your son, well, let's, before we get Thomas in New York, did your son, Grass, you said you read it with your offspring, and did your, your child, did they pick up like, oh, yeah, this is racist. I get it. Um, yeah, it's a, a female, but she was, she was even picking up on more um, things that, that I wasn't prepared for her to pick up on, like the, the yeah, yeah, it's Z from California, um, but the, um, the, the story, if I ran the zoo, it's about actually this kid, and the, the main character is this kid who goes on this grand adventure to collect all these animals, and then she's aware that it's this kid doing all this um, bad stuff, like going around and kidnapping all these animals, and she's aware that racist child is definitely a huge component to this um, system we're living in. So yeah, she was picking up on a lot of stuff, on a lot of a lot of the racism, and I was really, um, you know, happy for that. And I think, um, you know, this show has helped us to be able to, you know, decode. Ghosting has been able to help us decode. All the stuff has been in our face twenty four seven our entire lives. Mm. Z is brilliant. She was with us not that long ago. She told eating well, see, eating well and being brilliant. There is a correlation, but she was telling us all about the vegan brownies and everything, learning Spanish. Her no count white teacher can't get his headset correct. Uh, but that has been my experience. Justice was with us. Total genius. But I said, it's nothing like remarkable. It's not like, oh my gosh, there's going to be one in a billion justices. No. If you can be consistent and just be truthful, he didn't say that, you know, we went and had to go to the library and go through 50 hours of studying. And we got a Dr. Seuss book and sat down and read together. My child was picking out themes of white supremacy, racism that I wasn't even prepared for. Think Z's 11, if my memory is correct. I mean, the brain computer works well. And I mean, you've been on the See, 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 nine. The brain computer works well. Uh, All you need is just to be true. I'm sorry? Ten, I'm sorry. Ten, ten. Growing up fast was close. We shot the the gap right there. So ten, ten years old. And she, and Justice, she was ten when she got here. It's very basic. That's all it is. Use vocabulary that they understand. And you can use the stuff that's right there. The books that their school teachers conduct. The books that you have right there in the house. Like things that are happening in the news. What's happening to 10 year olds. Oh, slumber party. Forced to drink your things that are right there. And they've probably seen a lot of this stuff. They've heard a lot of this stuff. Their brain computer works. Just talk to them truthfully and use vocabulary that they can understand they will amaze you. I've heard that over and oh, we've had lots of cows listers who've done the same thing where they were a little bit hesitant, like, oh, I don't know if I should do this. And are they going to understand? Are they going to start saying hate whitey and kill whitey? And I've never heard that somebody who started talking to their child about racism and they broke out and kill whitey verse. I've never heard that. I have heard. Oh, yeah, I do get it. I was seeing this before and just picking up on all the patterns. Logic. Thomas in New York. Yes, so uh, forced to drink urine. I thought the Van Jones um urine drinking story uh, just 
tragic. I think he was also at a party with white people, not a sleepover, but he party. Um, Johnson and Johnson, I thought eight was a skin. Um, black man was experimented on by Johnson and Johnson. Um, I guess they're um, skin products. Um, the one dose that AstraZeneca makes, like Johnson and Johnson, does not need to be kept at sub-zero temperature. Uh, AstraZeneca is going to Africa and other third world countries without adequate refrigeration. I don't think that's the one I want to take if I have to take one. Um, after a summer of Black Lives Matter protests, and white people hearing and having to talk about the one thing they hate to acknowledge, um, more than anything, white supremacy, uh, they are now trying to change the conversation to black people attacking Asians. Uh, we just had a president who campaigned in 2015 about China and Chinese people, talking about them very bad. He had a trade war with China. He talked about them bad. He had them call the pandemic the Chinese flu, the Kung flu. I think that's what his staff called them. Um, but the Asians are facing racism for black people is the new headline. It's like they shifted, um, you know, the, all the racism for the last five years, that racism's been, um, that Chinese people have been getting from white people, in particular the most powerful white person in the country, and um, shifted it over to us. Um, my daughter's meeting. Um, she and her friends were told they're suffering from blind outrage. So, you know, <laughs> I started laughing. Um, Brazil, COVID-19 problem, um, right after um, China, the president wisely shut down all travel from Europe. You know, it seems like Brazil didn't follow that same guideline and those Europeans went over there and infected everybody. Uh, and um, Bella Sonaro is being targeted. Uh, all press and media will be negative, especially the way they'll be positioned here, here in the U.S. media because of his uh, nationalist positions. Uh, Single-family zoning um, makes it illegal to build anything other than a one home on one lot in a neighborhood. Um, so no more apartment buildings, duplex, multifamily homes, making homes more expensive and then taking away the renting class from that area. Uh, these zones now exist in several districts. So uh, 75% of Los Angeles is um, single family zoning. Um, so it's it's pretty common. And uh, this is the, the final um, step to gentrification, once they put this law in place, once they get an adequate amount of white people in the area, then they can effectively get out all the black people that's renting and can't afford to purchase the homes now because the prices have gone up so much. Um, very smart tactic by the white people. Um, they're continuing to make the correlation that the white people who thought the election was stolen or cheated and stormed the Capitol are somehow linked to violent white supremacist groups. Um, those white people were not in white supremacist gangs. Um, they were in Washington, D.C. They didn't attack any black people. There's plenty of black people in Washington, D.C. Um, they felt like the election was cheated, and you know they unwisely took, took steps that they shouldn't have. 
Um, Dr. Weldon said the New York Times, Carlos Slim, under Trump, we're going to be under the break of fascism. Um, no, the fascism is what have, we have witnessed in response to Trump. Uh, the neoliberal politicians working with the cable media, print media, social media, and the technology companies that owns all of those media brands um, have targeted people, labeled people, removed people just for having different political views. That's fascism. Working together with the private and the government to remove political opposition, um, we're watching that play out right here. Um, they're going to force people to agree with them or punish them for not agreeing with them. Um, it's, it's, it's one way or the other. I'll be with my mind. Thank you. Well, has somebody been removed from office? A politician had to step down? Not counting Trump. That's That doesn't count. I don't even think uh, Governor Cuomo had to step down. Did a politician, did, did somebody have to step down? No, they, they removed their, they removed, they removed political, people with political views from social media and places like that. I, I just uh-huh. said the social media, the mainstream media and the print media, all the tech companies are removing people who have a different political view. I see. I misunderstood. I thought. I was confused. Thank you for restating. I was confused. Thank you. Um, headline uh, is a metaphor making black people, black people attacking Asian people. Uh, the headline that one I have been paying attention. I have yet to locate like a report where they clearly identified like bang. This is a black person and they harmed some Asian people or a Asian person like most of these incidents have just been reports it hadn't been no one has been identified they just had like a suspect or you know this they had the victim this happened and you know blah 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 but most of them they have not you know charged someone and i've said the few that i have seen where it has been bang they got a photograph or they got video footage or what have you it's been someone who this is someone classified as white this is not a black person like even the only one that I got even close and even this one doesn't really count was Jeremy Lin said that he was called coronavirus during an NBA game, but he didn't identify the person. Same pattern. I said he didn't identify the person. Now he does play basketball with a lot of black people, but he didn't identify the person. The thing that I thought was interesting, they said that they were investigating and he's in the G league now, not the NBA, but still, you know, uh, they said they are investigating the NBA and the G League. And in fact, Jeremy Lin, he didn't say when this happened. I don't know if this happened in the bubble when he was in the NBA or if this has happened since then, G League. But anyway, either or, man, you talk about surveillance. Or I guess I'll say this, no name calling. Somebody does talk about that regularly. 10 stops, no name calling. Anyway, uh, he said he was called coronavirus by another player not a fan. The NBA and the G League, they have like cameras everywhere, microphones everywhere. Like you generally, you I mean, talk about social media. You get all kinds of instant, like immediate replays and from all 50,000 different camera angles. And they got players, they got 15 microphones on them and a camera on the jersey and everything. So if this happened, like, oh yeah, they should be able to identify and 
the NBA, G League, they have all kinds of rules. Like, woof. Number one, they do allow a whole lot of incorrect uh, language. But even that, like, they had black, they were about to make a rule in 2014 about black people calling each other nigger on the court with the ending in the A, which I do not think there should be any name calling. But even black people then stepped out and were like, man, like, I don't know how I feel about them telling us that we can't say nigger to one another. And so they backed down and where they decided not to make that a rule, but there's a long history of what they call trash talk, incorrect language being used by NBA players on the court. There's also lots of surveillance and rules. My general thinking is if the investigation, if they find that this happened, they will have heavy rules penalties for this sort of thing. And they generally have lots of cameras and white people making rules about what these mostly black employees do anyway. So if this happened, they will let us know about it and sanction appropriately. But I can't imagine like this sort of environment, like the NBA or G league environment, allowing that to be like a widespread thing. This happens all the time where he's going to be called COVID or Corona or Kung Fu, any of that. I could not imagine with how concerned Adam silver and, uh, the rest of the white billionaire Steve Ballmer that run the NBA, they would not tolerate that for like three seconds. They have I just told they barely tolerate black people calling each other nigger. In fact, with the bubble, if you've watched any of the games because they don't have any fans at a lot of these contests, you can hear a lot more of this. They've talked about that because there's so much profanity uh, used on the court. They've talked about that and even given out more technicals. Anyway, I'll be waiting for the investigation to see what happens, Jeremy Lynn, but I'm not aware of specific reports of black people attacking Asian people. I have seen reports of people that would be classified as white doing this. And I would just call that what it is. White supremacy, racism, long history, world war two, all the way through other folks uh, who dialed in with a hand up commentary to share. Proceed. Can I can I add something about the slumber party? Uh, let's hear. It. Okay, yeah, I'm be short. When I um didn't know any better um about racism, uh, my son was invited over by um his uh, white male friend at the time. And uh, I I said yes, and I brought him over to the house, and the parents greeted me, you know, um, kind of in a, a you know living room, but not quite a living room. It was too small, I guess. Like I don't know, whatever you would call it, um, but not deep in their house. So I dropped him off. Thought everything was okay. The next morning, when I picked him up, they invited me in. They're like, oh, come in, let's talk and have some coffee with us. When I went in, in the living room, the actual living room, not only did I see a dog, big dog, that wasn't a pit bull, but it had a big face, big jaw. I didn't know what it was. I asked them, what kind of dog is this? They said, it's a mountain cur. And then I was um, informed about how vicious they can be. But then later... Um, we went into the kitchen and in the back room of the kitchen, I was able to visually see and recognize a gun locker. And that was the last time that my son spent the night by somebody classifying as white house. And then about Dr. Seuss, he admitted that the cat in the hat 
was modeled after a non-white black female uh, elevator operator that wore white gloves. And he said she smiled slyly whenever somebody spoke to her as though she knew something um, that she wasn't supposed to or something that she shouldn't know. And I would also tell parents to uh, not let their children read Captain Underpants. Thank you. The sly niggers. Uh, Dr. Seuss has a UVA connection. That's for another day. Um, but the sly niggers. It can't just be that she had a nice smile. No, no, no. It was something sinister. Deceptive. See, they got militaristic hair and sly smiles. <laughs> Woo, man, oh man, the system of white supremacy immediately, immediately. Other folks that we uh, missed completely. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter in Florida. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to everyone. Speaking of hypocrisy. Uh, I think you were about to allude to uh, August the 6th, 1945, <laughs> a few days after that in Nagasaki, you know, killing killing women and children. Uh, they have souvenirs uh, in, the, in the museums of tricycles that were once ruled by Japanese children on that day that they were killed, uh, and yet uh, would be talking about uh, the falsity of someone mistreating uh, an Asian. Uh, DCS had their next to last session for this group uh, today with the DCS mentoring program. on the next to the last session, uh, basically what takes place is, is a uh, an award ceremony in the uh, facility. Uh, and uh, with restrictions of COVID-19, uh, the fellows were only allowed to invite one person representing them, uh, although it, it it appeared to be just about a representative for everybody, or it was more than one, but everybody was accommodated. Uh, things went uh, smoothly. Uh, we did advise, Mr. Clark did advise the parents uh, with this particular uh, group uh, that uh, to sign them up for another session, primarily because of the impact that COVID-19 had on the program and its curriculum. Uh, the program is used to going on what we call field trips every other Saturday, going somewhere, and they didn't really have that opportunity because of uh, the restrictions of covid of COVID-19, uh, and uh, 
some of the some of the most some of the the uh, fellows who got individual, everybody got something, but some some were bestowed uh, some individual uh, recognition based on their uh, means to uh, have a have a much more mature understanding of things and behavior, uh, and and that is acknowledged not just by us. Also, from the standpoint of a parent calling up a a mentor and stating, you know, what the uh, parent observed about the uh, young person that can be considered to be improvement uh, based on the program itself. And uh, some of those individuals were singled out and awarded for for that for that uh, recognition. Uh, next Saturday, uh, which is already uh, planned, would, would be a formal, more formal, uh, what is identified as semi-formal uh, event to where they will go to a, uh, a, a facility and uh, basically uh, uh, it would be considered to be in professional life, I guess, some sort of, you know, a dinner that somebody, someone in the corporate world would go to, would have to be required to go to, that sort of thing. We basically will be preparing uh, the young the young guys for that possibility, that sort of thing. That's, that's why uh, this particular last day is the way it is. And so they uh, have... Uh, they will wear suits and ties. Uh, uh, on one occasion, uh, they wore uh, uh, African wear, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's uh, uh, semi-formal wear. Uh, the the actually the suits are donated to us by a uh, a black male clother store that's owned by a family. Uh, and uh, where they measure, they measure each individual mentors as well as the uh, the young people and whatnot. That's been going on now for, since 2016, and uh, they show up to this re- this uh, restaurant and uh, uh, and they are served a meal. Uh, there would be some guests. There, I don't know who would actually would be there at this particular occasion, but uh, it normally would be some sort of guest there uh, at some point in time. Uh, but uh, that's basically what went on today. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Job well done. Retired firefighter, uh, Mr. Clark, other folks. I guess the parents, too. They have to get up and get the young fellows there and all that, sign the permission slips and such. Um that's oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We heard from a number of uh, when we talked to Z, 10 years old, um, and she and some of the other young folks, uh, I think Josephine, when we had our young people on and they said, man, we uh, we missed out. You know, we had like milestones, you know, uh, some of the young people themselves or their relatives and friends and things were like graduating and completing, you know, their little rites of passage and, and going through their different steps of maturity and missing out. Like can't even get, like I said, they normally could bring in a whole lot of folks and they could cheer them on and be happy about everything. And 
now you can only bring one person. Some people can't even do that. It's got to be virtual and all the rest of it. Like, man, it's been an unpleasant year. But job well done. You make the best of uh, what you have. And I'm sure the uh, young folks appreciated uh, the time and energy and weekly investment uh, that you all have made in something constructive uh, for the young folks down there in South Florida. Uh, Let's see. Did we. I think we got everybody. I reckon. uh, Yes. Got everyone. Uh, Minimum. We should be here uh, for the book club. Last Man Standing, Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Uh, Super looking forward. It has so many footnotes. Uh, It's been a while since I've read this book, but I read this book before and I remembered it being pretty good, pretty informative. Like if you're not, you know, very informed about the Black Panther Party, you will learn quite a bit. Uh, And as I, I mean, it's a long narrative. He was in greater confinement for 27 years. So it will go so long that we'll, see the rise and fall of the black Panther party, uh, the beating of Rodney King, (laughs) the acquittal of OJ Simpson, all of that will come back up in the books. It will be quite amazing, uh, to see, they call it going full circle with a narrative, uh, to start all of this in the book club with OJ Simpson and to see it come all the way back when we get to the end with Geronimo Pratt at OJ Simpson, Rodney King. Anywho, reading is more important than watching television. And the question, what is the purpose of your life if you are classified as black, non-white, in a system of racism, white supremacy? Answer to that question is important. Uh, Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We will need fully functioning brain computers to solve the problem Uh, in addition to being sober let's be buckled every time we are in a vehicle I still advise hunkering down like I guess depending on where you live I think Texas and some other states they said you know forget the masks and businesses can be open at maximum capacity and all the rest Um, I would recommend hunkering down You still have lots of dangerous whites and lots of other hazards uh, out and about in public That teacher from Cobb County is on the loose, I'm sure. Uh, If you do go out, if you see someone being loud and hostile, I would suggest do not engage. Exit. If you need to call enforcement officers, you can do that as you exit. But you don't know if that person is armed. You don't know if that person is with a whole cadre of individuals who are also armed. We already have a lot of hazards this year. We are very risk averse uh, for random confrontations in public. All of that said, uh, we are sober, buckled. If you are going to go out, you are extra vigilant, paying attention to what's happening around you. Uh, You are not on your cell phone. If you are driving, uh, trying to minimize contact with the Stacy Coons, Mark Furman's of the known universe. Uh, With that, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times. 
in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.